0: I think we're going live. Uh, Welcome to, oh, it's amazing. Welcome to Outlast the Iron. This is episode three uh, with Zach Homo, Alex Feinberg. Uh, Special day for me. This is my 34th birthday.
1: Happy birthday, Alex. Let's give a quick happy birthday. I I... wish I would have known. I would have brought a um, a T-bone steak with a candle in it. Yeah, this you? is
0: fun. You think that's funny, but you're not the first person who's done that. Actually, when I was working at Google uh, in 2012, I believe uh, it w- that would have been my 26th birthday, and I worked on a primarily female team. I'm actually incredibly, um, incredibly fortunate. Oh uh, yeah, well, so Google, uh, you know, talks about we want to hire, we want to be inclusive, we want to give everybody a chance, and like the only people they hired sales are good-looking people, and it's like you want you want to talk about like. Cultural discrimination and actual, actual tangible discrimination that's measured in tests, uh, felt by a large portion of the population. It's looks-based discrimination, and yeah. Google absolutely practices looks-based discrimination along with almost every other Fortune 500 company in the U.S.
1: Yeah, most definitely, and like every restaurant, you know, with good-looking waitresses. You know, here's something though about good looks. Um, I know, I think you follow that Tanner guy on yeah. social media as well. Mm-hmm. You can literally okay so this this grade you want to scale one to ten i mean you're you're a straight ten you're a beautiful human i
0: I I appreciate i appreciate that but but
1: let's just say you was an eight Mm -hmm. you know just just hypothetically Mm saying, if you dress nice have good hygiene carry yourself with confidence you immediately go at least one to one and a half on the scale like you become better looking by dressing better by taking care of yourself by doing your hair by working out and naturally just from being more confident. But all of those things also breeds confidence. And this is especially
0: 100%. true as a man. You know, and you can complain it's unfair or whatever, but you just observe how things work. And as a man, if you speak well, dress well, you're not fat, and you have a little bit of muscle mass, you're basically a good looking guy. Um, yeah. You know, some exceptions, you know, you could have the-
1: And, you, and, you can, and most dudes can grow beards, which can just cover up. You hey, know. speak for yourself. So, <laughs>
0: But you'll notice this, like, you know, I, I people thought I was like reasonably good looking when I was younger, but I think, um, you know, as I've gotten older, my body fat's gotten lower, my muscle mass has gotten higher. And I think what that ultimately does is it makes your feet, your facial features stand out. Like a lot of people have, um, much more defined jawlines than their body fat will present to the world. And so, uh, you know, simply losing 10 or 15 pounds or 20 pounds, um, you know, has more than just the impact on what your belly looks like or what your what wow. your six packs look like when you go to the when you go to the beach in the summer.
1: We we must be on the same wave or frequency right now because last night um, Ash was uh, working with one of her clients and we were discussing how her face used to be like super chubby when she was in college. Her, her, her clients. clients, right? Okay. Yeah, I don't know what Ashley
0: looked like, you know, ten years ago. So.
1: She was chubby too. Okay. ash was yeah well not like chubby but she was big boned i guess you could say <laughs> i don't
0: think your bones get smaller is that, is that a program that iron valley barbell offers bone drinking it was
1: just it was just a joke <laughs> um anyways but she said you know when she started strength because she used to be a runner like she still runs she still yeah. really enjoys a lot of running but she really just felt like she was like we talked about being skinny fat but she disgusted yes. her face most she thinks like her jaw lines like more defined now. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, well, really what it's come down to is just your 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 body composition's improved. Yes. Your body's now carrying more muscle in relation to fat. So yeah. obviously you're not holding so much around your face and obviously your your nutrition's better. So you're just not as bloated. And that's right. the next thing I think about. So like your jaw structure and your face actually's gotten prettier since you know working out. Right. You know, naturally you're know, like oh you know you just the more you grunt the harder, you, you know, the the more badass your your jaw looks. It's <laughs> true. There's that, uh, you, have you saw that invention where you just chew on it all the time? No. It's Like an infomercial ad. We, we just, just put this, I don't have a TV,
0: Zach. How am I going to see infomercials? Well, it's on, like, it's on Twitter.
1: It's, it's okay. a bunch of ads on Twitter. Yeah. I don't watch TV that <laughs> much either. <laughs> Anyways, oh. um, it's, you just chew on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, piece a plastic and it's supposed to define your jawline. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just yeah, I'm sure. Oh, you, you, know,
0: you know what I do yeah. instead of that is I eat two pounds of meat every day. And cool. that probably works it.
1: I think that does about the same exact thing. Right, right. Hey, you know what? I was actually saw something on on social media the other day, someone discussing that we don't um Oh my gosh, it was the same fucking ad. It was the same ad was talking about um how we don't um uh, chew basically enough and that's why our jawline is not as defined as what it could be um because the, all the food that we eat is soft, soft food.
0: I mean, that I, was I, the pitch.
1: I, that was kind of the pitch that they had. I'm like, well, these guys obviously don't fucking follow Alex cuz he always eats meat
0: well and I, that, that actually could be true because if you think about what processed food is is it needs to be easy to eat you know yeah. animals didn't make themselves to be easy to eat for humans i mean i guess you could you could say that some degree of domestication occurred to make the animals taste better but for the most part uh, our environment doesn't exist to please us we have reconstructed our environment in the way to please us and part of that is creating processed foods that uh, both taste better than you know anything that you would naturally find, um, especially if you get addicted to it. Maybe they don't taste better the first time, but like you keep eating Doritos, you're going to like eating Doritos. Um, Man, and it, Yeah, they're designed much, to go down easy.
1: It's crazy how much bigger the, the chicken has gotten from like the average size chicken in the 20s to mm-hmm. the average size chicken in 1920s to the comparison of the average size chicken now. And in 2020, it's almost like double the size of what it was.
0: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me as everything becomes, um, you know, much more competitive, uh, you know, with global capitalism essentially expanding, um, there's probably less and less room for medium sized farmers to, you know, grow chickens without pumping them full of hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a lot of people are talking about what that, uh, you know, factory farming will look like over the next several months. Given everything going on with COVID, are these things going to have to shut down? Um, you know, a lot of this is really concerning for me, even though I don't eat factory, factory meat just because of the, the cultural dialogue that I think will will likely piggyback on it. Um, and this kind of brings up one of the, the ideas that, that you and Zach had for, you know, what we're going to talk through on the episode, which is kind of like transitions, where um, I hope that we don't have to go through some sort of transition as a society towards, um, you know, fa- factory fake meat or something like that. Um, but I know with the emergence of a lot of the game changers type content, a lot of people who believe the content that that's in game changers and, and similar content, um, you know, and they, they don't think that somebody could be as healthy as I am eating 750 pounds of meat per year. Um, you know, I could be in a position where I, I might have to make some sort of, of transition to an environment where I can access meat, more easily and you know this isn't something that concerns me a ton now because I know I've been through transitions before and I know that uh, I can I can navigate changing landscapes and I think Zach I mentioned earlier you know on my birthday in 2012 when I was working at Google on a predominantly female team um, that was probably one of the biggest transitions that I made um, you know transitioning from uh, competitive sports uh, working in uh, at a hedge fund internationally to working in Silicon Valley on a a predominantly female team forced me to um, fail over and over again in in my first uh, corporate job for my first several months. Um, And I essentially kept failing until I was able to, you know, understand that I was playing a different game, you know, that doing sales at Google had different requirements from being a professional athlete or from being an analyst at a hedge fund. And if I kept telling myself that the, you know, aggressive uh, mindset, aggressive approach, aggressive attitude that worked in sports would work in in my sales role, um, you know, that was a reasonable hypothesis that proved to be wrong over and over and over again. Um, Yeah. When those transitions,
1: the first thing that I had learned from switching from coal mining, I discussed this on our last podcast, how I actually, that's a cool coffee cup, bro. Thank you. Yeah. Very pretty. Thanks. When I made the transition from coal mining to Muscle Farm, how I had you know, gotten in trouble by my boss by telling mm-hmm. off a GNC guy. So it was around that time though that I realized that I couldn't continue to conduct myself in that manner if I was going to have to keep my job with mm-hmm. Muscle Farm just for while, the time that I was with them until I got into my next field that I was going to be in. So I realized during that time I needed to latch on somebody who was doing well in the space. Yep. I just wanted to kind of mimic some of the behaviors that they had. Now, how are you conducting yourself? What, what kind of terminology are you using with your clients? How, how frequently are you speaking to them? And, um, I started just really mimicking the behavior of one of my other sales reps who was in a similar, um, region. And that's the next thing. Regions was big. Mm-hmm. Like, um, one of my sales reps was that of uh, he, he carried the whole Midwest region and his boss was the East coast region guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the terminology that was used on the East Coast, like in whether it's Philadelphia or New York, in relation to the Midwest, and then in relation to like Miami area, and then mm-hmm. if we're talking about like Cali, the terminology in the deals that we were going to make were completely different. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with just the the demographic, yeah. uh, and the, the culture's demographic. So I started learning directly, obviously, from the Midwest guy and how he was communicating with know obviously his clients and then i just started mimicking those behaviors and you know found a little bit of success in it but you know still i think it's important that we still can bring a lot of our past experiences and our you know the personality traits that we had once developed into the new into the new field as long as you just know that you're playing by a different set of rules
0: so what what allowed you to see that because a lot of people you know i i Transition from sports myself. You know, a lot of my friends have, took a lot longer to successfully transition from playing sports to to having jobs, and some of them are still in that rocky process. Um, a lot of men don't talk to each other about the uh, the challenges that that transition brings, um, but when they go through it, uh, a lot of times they'll they'll hit walls um, and they don't really talk to anybody about about why they're feeling the way they are, or you know, they don't. They don't want to be open and honest about the fact that they are struggling in a new field. And so what was sort of the the light bulb event for you that said, hmm, I'm not going to be able to do as well as I want by myself. I need to subordinate myself to somebody else, essentially, to learn from that person. Um
1: it comes down for me in particular, it's, it's based off self audits. So I do this on a weekly, on a day-to-day basis, then on a week basis where I just kind of audit my performance as a human. Mm -hmm. And I factor in, you know, all metrics. I talk a lot about metrics of success. Mm -hmm. So at Mm -hmm. this time it was like, you know, obviously how many sales I was driving and I was, you know, I was making new friends in the community because I just moved to Indies. So these are like, those are part of my metrics at that time. And you know, after a few weeks, I felt the compound effect of like, okay, so my, you know, rugged blue collar personality, wow, it does. I can communicate with, because the Midwest still has a lot of that, right? You know, farming, it's still a lot of that here, right? So I was like, I'm able to kind of get my foot in the door. But when I'm actually sealing deals, I'm missing. There's something I'm missing here. There's some terminology I'm missing. Mm -hmm. I was able to find that simply from the compound effect of like not driving sales. So I just kept on, you know, self-audit after self-audit. And I kept on narrowing it down to, you know, basically um, my communication skills to seal um, the deal wasn't up to par. And so, you, were you looking quiet.
0: at? Were you basically looking at your job performance the way you look at your deadlifting, where you're like, okay, it's yeah. my positioning off. This every, is how I'm tracking every, week to week. Yeah, yeah.
1: Every, That's Everything everything, everything yeah, goes and, back to lifting for me. Absolutely everything, because I just find my weaknesses and I develop them. Now, now mm-hmm. I don't focus on my like I don't. If something's a weakness for me, like English, right? I'm not really good, which is funny. Right? I'm not very good. You can see my Twitter. Um, I'm not good at uh, spelling. Uh, It's it's interesting. There, there, there. Yeah, right. So I
0: I tell people like Zach talks like he's white trash, but he's actually really smart. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, But that's not that's not something that I've ever just been even interested in. So I have a hard time getting better at things that don't interest me, right? Mm -hmm. I'd rather focus my attention on the things that have already come naturally good to me, Mm -hmm. work really hard in that field. But in that field, there's still going to be some things that I still have to be able to communicate it well enough on Twitter where people can understand it. Right, right,
0: right. But you well exceed that bar. Like, I think people know what you're talking about
1: so I feel like I have to make sure I still rate, you know, bring my weaknesses up, but I don't go all in on a weakness. I go all in on a strength. And then as I'm pursuing that strength, you know, fitness, whatever this looks yeah. like for me, I'm going to have to fill in the blanks, you know, yes. Hey, this is something I'm not doing so well at. And I'm going to develop this weakness. If it's, if I'm going to be the best that I possibly can be in my strengths. And what's, so for what's, me, I assess everything that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what's really interesting to me is, how this sort of approach to life influences um, your social ideology, political ideology. And, and I say this coming from a pro sports background where um, you know, pro sports people, you know, pro baseball players might not be the smartest people in the world, um, but they are very competitive. And I would imagine the same thing is true with elite power lifters where Um, there's probably a little bit more precision and intelligence that's going on in elite powerlifting than there is you know maybe in in elite uh, baseball Um, but you know one thing that is constant between the two is metrics based performance assessments on a daily or weekly basis and you know I think that that's not the end-all be-all like a metrics based performance assessment will not give you a hundred percent of the picture of what's going on but the people who don't do it um, tend to not be successful. And I think at at very, very elite levels, I would imagine that there are people who backed away from metrics based assessments. I I could think artists um, might do better if they didn't pay attention to metrics the way, um, you know, salespeople or entrepreneurs paid attention to metrics. Like the more. Hold that real quick.
1: Hold that thought real quick. Would it, and and wh- why would artists not in in just thinking out loud is it, would it be because you know the number of downloads they had on an episode or something what what is the reason why
0: yeah i lo- i look at this stuff as like um left brain right brain type thinking and so i think the benefit most of our society is built for metrics based um colloquially left brain thinking where um, you know, I can tell that these seven things are things that I need to improve on what sort, and then this is what I'm going to do to improve on thing. A, this is what I need to do to improve on thing. B, this is what I need to do to improve on thing. C, this is what I need to do to improve on thing. D. And this works for concrete things. But when it comes to art, uh, a lot of times, you know, your ability to be successful as an artist, uh, has to do with you creating unique things and you're not going to create something unique and emotionally moving by working to fix something, right? Like you're not gonna say like, okay, my, my downloads are lower um, in these 12 countries. So I'm gonna create content uh, that's specific to the, the Colombian audience uh, so I can do well in Latin America. Like that's not why pop songs take off. They don't, they don't take off because somebody's sitting, at, you know, sitting in front of a map saying your distribution in this region's poor, you should create content or, uh, for this region. Um, and that'll make you do better. Like maybe that, maybe that's some sort of directional inspiration for, you know, Hey, think about doing that. But at the end of the day, if you want to drive sales as an artist, you need to create hit content and hit content needs to emotionally move people. And the people who are able to create content that emotionally moves people are typically not the ones who are analytically methodically plotting it there. It's, it's a different uh, construction process that allows you to, to be very, very good on that level as at least how I see it.
1: I see it that way that that makes sense I I see what you're saying um it also probably just like based off what what the metric is right Mm -hmm. you know what that particular you know artist or whatever I don't know much about creating like as an artist would I know Mm -hmm. I think I'm an artist in my space and for me it's I look for problems like for the deadlift for instance you know I've given you maybe the same deadlift tips I've been coaching you um maybe 10 times but it's been said seven different ways correct you know, cause I'm trying to find ways that you, this is going to break through and you're gonna be able to hear this, especially working with clients online. I feel like a lot of online coaches fail at this. You know, they might read an article or get some terminology from a coach or themselves that they've been, you know, kind of working through over the past year or two, whatever that might look like, uh, 20 years, whatever. But they use the same terminology with every single client. Yeah. When you're working online with people, you, you, you miss body language and physical touch. Yes. I'm a very touchy coach. Like, I'm grabbing you. I'm shoving your, your fucking elbows. Yeah. You know, that he wasn't very far from my hometown. Well, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm jamming you into positions, getting your lats loaded. Like, for instance, your uh, your armpits, right? When you're deadlifting, you should be thinking that when you're loading your lats that there's lemons underneath your armpits and you're squeezing them trying to draw lemon juice out. That's mm. how hard your elbow... your your armpit, your your shoulder should be tucked into your armpit for lat engagement. Mm-hmm. So when you're in person, like I'll bring lemons and I'll shove yeah. them under there and try to get you to squeeze like that physical cube goes a really long way. So when I'm expressing this terminology to a client online, it's important that I have multiple analogies that would register for them. So they're going to be able to get the experience that they need out of the movement.
0: Yeah. And this, that reminds me very much of a, a conversation I had with one of my college coaches, but last year. So uh, at Vanderbilt, you know, I went to school to play baseball and get a, get a degree, and I didn't expect that the people who would be coaching me and my teammates would actually succeed to the extent that they had. And so our uh, our pitching coach at the time, I think when I came into school, he was, like, the national pitching coach of the year for college baseball. But he ended up getting a job in pro ball and uh, worked in, the, in a minor league system for a couple of years. And, like, in his third year, he ended up being a major league pitching coach just because he's so well-respected. And, um, you know, so it had be, actually been about 10 years since I, uh, since I really, really caught up with him. You know, we had like a lunch here and there. Um, but last year when, when uh, the Reds were in town playing against the Giants, uh, you know, I went out with him, one of the other coaches and uh, one of my teammates, was four, four of us former Vandy guys. And you know, just talking to, to this guy and listening to how he works with Major League baseball players, how, how he works with basically his students um, or employees, depending on how you want to, how you want to look at it. Um, he has the communication skills of an amazing executive. There's nothing different about what he does than a leading executive in terms of explaining, um, what he wants his employees essentially to do, but making it seem like it's their idea because ultimately he can't make his pitchers throw the way he would. He can't step inside their body. And so if he wants a, uh, you know, a behavioral change, or if he wants a approach change, um, or if he wants a change in physical output, um, usually there's a reason why his student or his employee is doing it a different way. And so he needs to figure out, he's basically playing the Swiss army knife game or is this, a, is this a way to explain it to this person? So he thinks it's his idea and he runs with it. Is that a way to, th- to explain it to, to this player? So he thinks it's his idea and he runs with it like, and he doesn't necessarily care how he gets his message across so long as he's getting it across, but he's aware of the necessity of rephrasing the same thing in multiple different ways until his student, until it clicks essentially with the student. And he's, he's been the major league pitching coach of the year. Like yes, last year was just, Done. It was like his third year as a Major League Baseball pitching coach.
1: And it really just goes down to he just understands human psychology. If you kind of bring yes. that full circle, like you said, is you cannot make people do anything. Like that's why the war on drugs failed, right? And we're in it still, and it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's why when people are like, stay home, like you don't really think you're making a difference, right? By just posting people to stay home like do you really think that the people on the opposite end of the spectrum are going to stay home just because you tweeted to stay home so this like, is where i might disagree the i
0: might disagree with you on that zach just because you're just in- fine
1: let me let me okay. let me continue sure. and that's fine because you're also i gotta figure out how much more sheltered you are than i am in our particular situations mm-hmm. uh, to see because i've i've saw completely because indianapolis is funny it's really broke up there's people who are like "fuck you," I'm gonna do whatever I want, and there's yeah. other people who are like completely afraid and fear-driven. Right. But it's funny to me. It's a very, it's a it's a lazy way to push a narrative by just posting on social media what, what you think people should do. You don't drive the needle nearly enough um, to actually make people think what uh, what they should and should not do, in my in my opinion. But go ahead.
0: So you're a very independent thinker, and I'm an independent thinker. So like you try to understand things as they are um, in language that makes sense to you. Um, I don't think it's probably been many years uh, since you did something because you saw some cool person do it on TV. Um, Most people Uh, know
1: that that shirt thing I did the other night. That was because I found someone doing it on social media.
0: Okay. So yeah, we all have (laughs) occasional flashes of idiocy um, where we do things like that. But, you know, you're, I don't think you, I don't think you realize how many people completely lack autonomy. Um, mm-hmm. Like you do. I think on one hand, you like a lot of people do not make or think independent thoughts. Like, let's just, let's just lay it out there
1: for every thousand. People, yeah, I agree with that. 100, I agree okay. with that
0: 100%. Right. So, so for every thousand people in society, let's say 800 of them probably don't think very many independent thoughts like of, of high complexity. Sure. They think like, I want to eat this for dinner. Maybe that's because they saw a commercial. I don't know. But, but if you take a society, 200 people out of eight, out of a thousand are going to be like, okay, so this is what's going on. I think this is why this guy's telling me this. He's trying to get that. He's trying to get that. So I'm I'm going to do that. That's okay. 800 of them are going to be like, I heard this expert on TV saying this, or Jimmy said that, you know, so-and-so said this, so I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm what's wrong with you? You think you're too good for us. And so it's like, there's this pack psychology that most people within a society take. And I think that pack psychology is why people stay in jobs. They don't that that keep them unhappy and and they stay in in relationships that keep them unhappy. Um, and they stay with lifestyles that keep them unhappy. Ultimately I believe because they feel that it's safer to kind of just go along with the pack. Um, than it is to break free and do something uh, independently or autonomously. And so, and you've obviously done that with your career or you, you started your own gym. um, So you clearly have that initiative um, to think and act on your own. But I don't think that, I don't think that a hundred percent of people have the capacity to do that tomorrow. Now we could argue. And I agree
1: now, now that stuff I agree with though, but where we're speaking now directly to COVID nineteen, while we're just kind of on that the whole stay home thing, yeah, um, I don't think it's eight hundred to two hundred though. Is what I'm, uh, meaning? I think out of that eight hundred people who are just being fed like all oh, this is stay home, you know, fear driven or yeah. um, pack, you know, the pack mentality. Yeah. Out of that eight hundred, there's going to be two to three hundred people who think completely opposite. And those okay. are the people I'm speaking to—the people who okay. think completely opposite. So if you break that out, you know, you can even do it 60/40. So 60% of people think they should stay home, and the 40 people think that they are fine to go out and do whatever they want. Each of them are not; neither of them are independent thinkers, right? Both of them have been directly influenced either by the news media, same standard, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, the other...
0: majority of both groups, and, and we talk about this yeah. politically. It's like yeah, and most then the other group, are dumb. but that's too, <laughs> yeah. I'm
1: discussing like the people who say stay home. Like it's everyone base who stays home is, is preaching to stay home to people mm-hmm. in some capacity or another. Right. Yes. But what I'm trying to say is do those people really think they're going to persuade free thinkers like myself? that's a negative. Or are you do how many people from that other side of people are like, fuck this, I'm going out and about how many people do you think that you're going to persuade to actually actually stay home by just saying, stay home. Mm-hmm. It's the hero complex. Because we both know that like, yeah, you might grab five or 10 and vice versa. You might grab five or 10, but you're probably not going to change people's minds and to where the free thinker, like you and I are going to say, okay, what's the most logical way to approach this? What makes the most sense for me in my particular lifestyle?
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that the way you know, both the rebels and the, the, the collectivists. So let's just call them the collectivists or the stay at home people. The rebels are the people who don't want to stay at home. Both, okay. both groups are going to have their own respective generals. Like, like it's not like the rebels are a bunch of independent thinkers. They're they're going to probably be more independent thinkers, but there's, they still have generals within them. Um, yeah. And it's still, yeah, it's still easier to, to understand the world through someone else's eyes because it doesn't require you to do the groundwork and actually seeing things, in um, developing your own independent perspective. And, and really, we've talked about this in many different ways, how um, to be part of a group, what what ultimately ultimately happens in a group is you have many hangers on. You have many people who will want to be a part of something but not want to contribute um, you know, their blood, their sweat, their tears, their sacrifice. And, um, and so when you're trying to understand human behavior, if you look at what looks to be a low investment decisions <clears throat> that um, – you know, require very, you know, a very small down payment. Um, social signaling is one of them. And so simply by posting some uh, some message on Twitter about staying at home or, you know, having empathy or some, some you know, one of these catchy things that, that it seems that everybody's saying, um, the reason why you'll have as many people doing it as you see is because they are in their own minds rising within a hierarchy with very minimal work it's sort of you know it's it's sort of the adult equivalent of buying jordans or it's like it's, look at it's how cool the, hero,
1: it's the hero complex it's yeah. believing that you're a hero it's mm-hmm. believing that i'm saving lives and that i'm advancing myself in the social status by saving people's lives by telling them to stay home like mm-hmm. that's obviously what you're thinking if you're saying that you know, when you're arguing back and forth on social media with people, right, to stay home and if someone else is like, and you guys are going back and forth, is that how you would perceive that?
0: Well, it's a little like what are these that.
1: When these people are arguing back and forth on social media together, it, it, speaking the human psychology of it, right? Yeah. What do these people believe they're gaining? Do they believe in their mind that they're saving lives by arguing mm-hmm. with someone else that they don't know who's anonymous on Twitter?
0: I, so I think this, this, uh, you know, I think we we talked about this, I think on our first episode where, um, I think the human reaction towards pathogens is fairly consistent. And so I think, you know, if you're exposed to the flu or the common cold or something that resembles that your body will, will instantly come to its defense and it will send out, you know, whatever antibodies, however it is that your body, uh, you know, however its immune system works, it will fire. Um, we have very little experience evolving towards interacting with a social media environment. so I think the way that you respond to, you know, somebody who disagrees with you on social media is very similar to your body responding to a pathogen that is similar to something it's seen before, but something it has not seen before. And it's going to, it's going to likely make you respond, you know, aggressively, um, you could almost call it an auto, autoimmune disorder, where I think, you know, if you pay attention to, to different disorders that are popping up throughout society, it does appear um, to my layman's eyes that autoimmune disorders are uh, happening more frequently, or at least being diagnosed more frequently. And so, and so we, in our physical environment, are already overreacting to a lot of stimulus. Um, I think this is happening digitally too, where, you know, people just get drawn in. It's almost like a, a, they're not even thinking about it, right? It's just a reflexive, like, I'm going to defend my point. And they don't, obviously, they're not trying to change a person's mind. They're actually just trying to eliminate that threat is why I think they're doing it.
1: Interesting perspective. That uh, yeah. that makes a lot that makes that makes actually a lot of sense because you can see there's not a lot of logic in, in most huh. of these people's um that there's no substance in, in, in any of their arguments. It's very base level, it's very right. headline based, you know, you can tell it's based around fear and other tactics that's being used. Yeah, I, I agree with that hundred percent.
0: Yeah, like if you see somebody get in a bar fight, how many bar fights do you see where one person is trying to teach the other person a perspective? Like no, I'm pretty sure they just want to inflict pain on the other person and eliminate them, right? And yep. so this is just that. It's just the digital equivalent of a couple idiots getting in a drunken bar fight, and you see it over and over and over again all day.
1: Yeah, that is uh, that's that's the quite interesting lens to look through. I would have to agree with that.
0: Yeah. So uh, I don't know um, where where are we going with this.
1: I don't know. I'm, just, I'm always really intrigued at people's reactions, though, especially through social media and now, because I've just been doing so much observing um, and, and how people are conducting themselves during this time of adversity. Because all of us are under a little bit of adversity right now, yeah. and you know, the first two to three weeks, you saw a lot of your social media people that you would not expect to have you know certain reactions. You know, starting to have certain reactions, and it also okay. just opens your eyes up to like, okay, how well this person handles adversity, because it's really easy to be good on. Twitter. Mm-hmm. Like you get to think about it before you write it. Like, right. It's so much, it's infinitely easier to be more liked on social media than what it is in person. And yeah. that's actually a metric that I base my success off of because I have everyone on my team actually is from social media. They once yeah. found me on social media, want to be a part of it, moved here, sacrificed a ton, went through my rigorous uh, training process to be a part of my team and um, that doesn't make sense to most people. Right. And then right. next year, these guys made it right? And, right. and it's like, how long, how long do I stay friends with these guys? The longer people are with me, do they grow closer to me or further from me? Cause that's what oh, actually okay. defines my character. It's yeah, not how many likes I get on social media. It's when I'm around people in person, yeah. are they growing closer to me or further from me? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm very proud to say, you know, my guys have been here multiple years and they continue, we continue to grow together and uh, yeah. So how did you I'm get focused positive. in on that metric because
0: there's a million ways you can look at your success or failures, and that's uh it makes a ton of sense to me that you would do that but it that was, that's not been a top metric of mine to evaluate myself by maybe it should be going forward, but
1: how I did I just? I just realized that everybody can put on a good face for like an hour, you know, mm-hmm. or two hours. Everybody mm-hmm. can put on, you know, and, and I I think it's more so too because I actually grew up in social media, like 2010, mm-hmm. you know, in high school. Like we had my, before high school, we had MySpace, I had AOL. So like I was my development from my adolescence all the way to now was really inter. My DNA is really intertwined with social media. Yeah, in makes sense. And how I'm being saw by the public. So with that being said, I knew that it was an, it was artificial, though. That right. I, I was able to recognize that from really early age, that it was artificial. And that true meaning and, uh, and value of my character was defined when I'm around people. So I just knew that I shouldn't um, – I, I just knew that at that time, basically, that I needed to base my success off of actually how I was making people feel and the tangible – you know, it's – it's also the tangible things right we it's just like when you when you buy something and you can hold it and you can feel it it's just it's just a lot different yeah you know what i mean and it's just like that and I, I feel like that's where a lot of even fitness people are going and i see this more in fitness because this is my space where everything's very automated and mm-hmm. it's just like you know you have like your uh virtual assistants and i think mm-hmm. all this stuff is cool for scaling and making more money and that's mm-hmm. awesome because i'm just visually seeing that a lot of people in this fitness space like of course they i think I think people are good at heart. I think people truly do want to help people. But I also think that the value and the metric that they're basing off of, of helping people is a lot different than the value and the metric that I'm using to help people. I don't want a virtual assistant. I don't want people running. I want to answer my own direct messages. I want to speak to my own people directly to them because I know that's where the depth is found. That's where real impact is made. Mm-hmm. Um, I can put a bunch of flashy tweets out that like, help motivate you throughout the day. But when I can really change your life is when I can get in person with you and actually talk to you.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm thinking of the areas that that would play and the areas that that wouldn't play. And the areas that would play is running your own business where you're your own boss and you don't have to convince anybody else that that's the right thing to do. And I think Hmm. maybe many other people might be listening uh, to us and they say, well, you know, I would love to do that, but and there's always a but, right, right. And if you're working in say a large corporate environment, say you're at muscle farm and your boss says, okay, we're going to use all these automation tools. We're going to use CRM. We're going to use automated marketing. Um, you know, get your clients emails here so we can continue to, to message them on a weekly basis or twice a week basis. Um, and this is how we're going to automate everything. Uh, you can't really say, yeah, Hey, that's great for you guys, but Midwest we're not going to do that. Like I'm going to do my own thing because I like these guys and and, and they like me. And so, you know, how, I guess, what would you tell somebody who, who is in that environment? Um, and we might know given the fact that you left that environment to do your own thing. Um, but, you know, maybe talk through, like, what are some of the challenges in terms of actually being authentic? Cause if it was so easy to be authentic, everybody would be authentic.
1: Yeah. One of the challenges is if you're with corporate, you need to also understand what are, what are their values? What's their metric? Mm-hmm. And if it is, you know, obviously generating more revenue that, that's going to fall down, you know, that's going to fall down the ladder. So they're going to put systems in play that's going to give them the best possible uh, case to make as much money as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. When my value system doesn't align with their value system, I knew that this was only a pit stop for me. I, right. I knew in my mind when I started working for Muscle Farm, this is not a long-term gig. Not sure. that the company was even that bad to work for Honestly, it was the easiest job I ever had. I only worked like three or four days a week, five, six hours a day. It was, easy. you weren't
0: covered in black soot when you got done with your days,
1: right? It was, it was relatively easy for me. I was, I'm good at, you know, and, and I talked to the beginning of the things I was bad at, you know, the things that I'm good at is communicating with people, talking right. to people, meeting people, my time. That's how I generated most of my sales. You know, muscle form was on its way out. Like the reason I got cut is basically because the, the, the company's losing, it lost all its money. Basically it's went from, oh, I didn't know that. Hot, okay. oh yeah. I went from being like literally the top fucking brand to like, now it's just, Fucking another one, you know. They sold out when the Walmart, and so when they're selling products to Walmart, and someone go get it for ten dollars cheaper at Walmart, and I'm trying to sell it to a mom and pop shop, they're like, "Dude, you can't even give me a deal. Would even be competitive with Walmart. Why would I even buy from you?" Crazy so i was put in that particular so automated systems wouldn't have worked nearly as effectively for me that
0: expensive deal that you that made didn't make sense on thursday well now you can have it on saturday
1: right right so with that being said i just knew that it was a part-time stop for me just because the, the business didn't align with my core values and and i was obviously like what i had just stated so um yeah when i when i had had known that it was a pit stop for me and then when it also gave me though the understanding of how I run it, wanted to run my business moving forward, and I'm still fine tuning this now. I don't think I'm the the best ever at it. I think I'm on my way. I'm creating actual better. I, when I create systems for myself in my personal business, it's so it allots me more time to focus on people, meaning mm-hmm. like direct messages, having cookouts at the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever you came to town, we hung out for five six hours. Like I just yeah, drop yeah. everything. Like I have this time available because yeah. I have you know, rigorous systems in play that like on these days, this is how I communicate with my clients. This is how I, this is how I do this. This is how I do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this so I can be available for free time to be with people when they come meet me in person or wherever it's on a video chat or what that, whatever that might look like. Yeah, so you that, can almost look at,
0: look at that as like uh, effective programming where you're, <laughs> you're essentially trying your best to limit overloading yourself with, you know, compound lifts and really focusing on accessory movements to improve your weaknesses to grow yes. the IVB system.
1: Yeah, which is actually, I talked about that yesterday on my deadlifts. Mm-hmm. Um, I did 20 sets of one with 405.
0: Yeah, what was up with that? I, I didn't. I, I saw the video, but I didn't listen to the audio.
1: Okay, so I did, was just literally just did one bit, one rep. Right. So all it was though, and um, I, I have a newsletter, I actually drop it on this too this next week, so let's, let's link this in so people can check it out. All right, hear me out. There is going to be good Bad and super efficient ways to reapproach your training after an extended time off. So, everyone should listen to this right now because they're yeah. all have had some level of an extended time off away from the gym. Mm-hmm. And if you've been doing body weight workouts, you already know that the stimulus from body weight is just far different from the iron. Mm-hmm. So, when you go back to the iron, you're going to be hyped up. To lift again mm-hmm. and you're gonna be running off a lot of adrenaline especially that first week or so yeah so when you're in there and you're feeding off and you're going to see what environment is everyone else is on their way back so the environment yeah. in your gym even the global gym is going to be sky high right uh-huh. what's going to happen adrenaline yeah we do <laughs> yeah. Week two, your body is going to be fucking wrecked you might even set a new pr be like dude i came back from quarantine stronger than ever but then you know the next four weeks of your training is all fucked up because you maxed out your deadlift and it takes three you know Fourteen days to recover from a max effort deadlift. You don't even know that. So then you're just going back in the next week, lifting the heavy again, wondering why your body's so beat up. So that right there is a bad way to reapproach your training. A good way to reapproach your training would just to go back in and you know do a couple sets of five and feel it out, and that, that that'd be good. You know, you're not trashing your body, but you're still going to be really, really sore. And then an efficient way to reapproach your training is to establish what are my weaknesses. How mm-hmm. do I establish what my weaknesses? Find a general way seventy to eighty percent of of your previous maxed, you know, even 65, You feel like you've gotten that much weaker and do it for multiple sets of one, which I, what I did on the deadlift yesterday with no eccentric. So I got to the top and I dropped it. I have nothing to prove with 405. I can pull it a thousand fucking times. I don't have to do the eccentric every single rep. The eccentric, when you're doing the eccentric movements, as you know, whenever you was doing eccentrics with me, they tax your body. Mm-hmm they're they're not as hard as the, the central nervous system but on your muscles you're going to be extremely fatigued after because you're talking about doing a four-second eccentric and when you're doing the eccentrics you're firing x amount i think it's like x amount i don't know the exact number percent more muscle fibers so basically that's where you can do more on everyone knows this right you can do more on a negative
0: mm-hmm.
1: eccentric than you can on a concentric so your body mm-hmm. can resist pressure better than it can push pressure away sure like that's why you see everyone overload their bench pressure. Like, yeah, I do have eccentric and someone picks it up off me. They call it a negative. Right. Right. So essentially is I pulled I pulled that portion of the exercise out. And rather than doing the eccentric works on the deadlift and frying myself. I utilized exercises that I know I'm gonna it in. So me in particular and you, you're gonna fail as well with your stability because you haven't been around the barbell for a while. So you're gonna find your stability is going to be a little off. I had a sprained ankle, so I know how to rebuild my stability in that right ankle if I was gonna If you're not stable, you're not strong. So if you're shaking all the way throughout a yeah. lift, you're traveling longer ranges of motion, distributing the energy around yeah. your body where it shouldn't be. So with that being said, I focused on single leg kettlebell deadlifts, four to five second eccentric, four to five second concentric. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so what that did is kill two birds with one stone. It was a less demand. It wasn't four oh five. It was only sixty five yeah. pounds, right? So it was a far less demand, but I was able to stimulate my body in two ways: the the eccentric and concentric. It was constant time under tension. So time under tension is going to develop muscle mass. It's like hypertrophy, if you will, mm-hmm. right? And then as you're going throughout the the, out the exercise, I'm also focusing on core stability, ankle, knee, and hip stability. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do increase the amount of accessory movements that I'm doing with lower impact exercises. And then I'll do this for three weeks. And then I'll go through a phase where I add an eccentric work. So after three to four weeks of preparation, prepping my body to be more stable, to be able to handle the loads, to be able to find my center of mass on obviously lifting, whatever the weight might look like. And this is something that people don't do enough of either. They don't know where their center of mass is. Mm-hmm. They, they can't find it whenever they're lifting weights. So that's why they're always all over the place. Once you're able to find your center of mass and not to distribute that energy equally throughout the, the muscle groups that's being worked in the movement you're going to be far more proficient interesting efficient. i've never
0: i've never thought about it like that but when you say that i i understand where i think my center of mass is, and so i could see why that's incredibly helpful now is the the limiting the eccentric movements uh that you're presently doing on the the 405 deadlift you presently did is that related to your uh, affinity for touch and go deadlifting
1: is it what for my touch and go deadlifting so
0: like you know if you're going to wrap a deadlift weight as many times as possible, obviously the easiest thing to do is do the concept concentric portion of the movement and then like rest on the way down. So you can go do the concentric concentric portion again. Uh, you know, critics online will say, well, that's not a real deadlift. The touch and go deadlift is not a real deadlift. Um, but then you would say, well, there's actually a lot of benefits to, to this from a training standpoint. And so, you know, what yes. are the benefits of from a training standpoint of doing say 10, you know, say eight touch and go deadlifts instead of maybe, you know, six full stop deadlifts, which you maybe would be a, a reasonable equivalent if you, if you, okay, the, the so and we're working the eccentric portion.
1: So doing a touch and go deadlift is going to be efficient because what is doing is you're traveling on the eccentric portion of the movement in the positioning that you should be going through the concentric portion of the movement. And this is typically mm-hmm. why you see people who do touch and go deadlifts. If you can rep something for one, you can typically do it for two mm-hmm. because your form, if you hit hinge correctly and everything's you know up to date, you know your weaknesses are developed or whatever, mm-hmm. your eccentric and almost for everybody though your eccentric movement and your second rep is going to be better than your first rep because you're. Your muscle is already preloaded. you know. Yeah. When, you, when you do reset reps, you know, you know. When I'm even in competition, I don't do reset reps. So I had to do 550 for. I did it for 11 in the New York Strongest Man. I think it was 11. I forget what. It, I don't remember what it was. And rather than resetting each rep, so rather than getting to the top and just letting the bar drop, I used if quote unquote if you will, but in my work capacity was built up more energy by actually going a little bit slower on the concentric and staying loaded in position. So, when I stay loaded yeah. in position, I touch the ground and then they're like up, oh, I just fire right back up because all my muscle groups are already previously loaded.
0: Mm, mm. You see what
1: I'm saying? If yeah. not, you have to re fire every single muscle group. So, touch and go deadlifts are definitely easier. Like, for instance, my best touch and go with 635 was 10. My best touch and go or my best pause with 635, pausing each rep, was six. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's. Tremendous. But the benefits in the touch and go reps is you're constantly staying loaded. So you're stimulating your muscles more and you're also putting, keeping yourself in a more effective position through, through the duration of your reps. Mm -hmm. Now the reset reps though are still good to utilize. And the reason why they're good to utilize is because it teaches you how to be effective and how to actually load your body properly Mm -hmm. for obviously, uh, you know, multiple reps, resetting each rep. But when you say touch and go deadlifts don't count, y'all you, you know anyone not you but anyone who's saying this right you need to recognize that nothing counts unless it's in competition so the way you train everything counts i do floor press where i unrack the barbell on the ground and come down where my elbows touch the ground and come up do i count that as a bench press no but do i count that as a weakness development exercise that's going to help effectively load my triceps and overload the top end of my my uh, my bench press and help develop my weaknesses yes mm-hmm. you know so it's just like I utilize specific exercises in my training and specific training principles within my training to become better at my maximal effort attempt or whatever my goal is. Mm -hmm. So in, in powerlifting that was, I did a ton of touch and go reps, but there is nothing that gets my glutes and hamstrings on fire more than touch and go reps. If you think about this for a second. If you're doing touch and go reps with 405, we both know that the hardest part of the deadlift, well, for some people at least, but a hard part of the deadlift is when you're coming off of the ground to mm-hmm. fully start the energy. You need to load your hamstrings, mm-hmm. your glutes, and you have to have a strong hip hinge, right? Have you ever done a 405-pound or a 205-pound single leg curl? No. No. But your body's distributed 405. And when you're going on through the eccentric portion of your movement and you're about to touch the ground, that's where your hamstrings are most engaged. Mm, yeah. That's where you're – so you're overloading your hamstrings. You're overloading your glutes and the muscle groups that are being worked when you're doing touch and go reps. Yeah. So your body's yeah. being able to support heavier loads because it's used to it. It's not just used to the lower impact accessory movements that you're given. It's also used to higher impact exercises.
0: Yeah, no, that's, and that's a very interesting split between essentially training in the gym versus performing in the gym, right? Yeah. I find, I personally find, a lot of people find it, it's, it's easier to show up every day to me when you're looking at training like a game, right? And so for me, and, and I've written a, a training program that I'll release whenever gyms are open is my training programs are probably scientifically going to be less uh, effective on a 12 week period than, than someone else's because they're not, uh, they're not written, you know, to, to switch things up every three weeks. Um, they're not really writ- written from a weakness development standpoint. Um, they're written to be fun. So you go in there and you say, okay, how am I going to beat myself last week by while still maintaining, uh, positioning, um, not doing anything dangerous. I just want to outperform my performance last week. Um, and so I found for me personally, that type of approach has worked tremendously well for the last 10 years where, you know, I'll switch up uh, my rep schemes, you know, or, or my, my training like every six months and we'll just make a minor modification to it. And, you know, so no, I'm not, I'm not mixing things up with the variance that a professional athlete would or an elite powerlifter would. Um, but it's less mentally taxing for me to just go in there and say, okay, I'm just going to try to, it's Tuesday. I'm going to try to beat what I did last Tuesday. Great, and then it's a very clear goal for. I know exactly how well I did last week. I'm going to try to do better. Um,
1: But you know that and the the problem though with a split like that, it, it works really well for the athlete who knows how to work really well for themselves. Yeah, and because c- where's that line? known? the what you, what one person may can, can may consider to be good positioning or good form, I may not. Mm-hmm. So to say that your form is you know efficient through every exercise. Uh, and as you scale it, you know, those minor scales that you do each week, you know, are you training your body out of position? This is something that we don't look at very much in training either Right. Mm-hmm. So if you, can, if you deadlift and every time you deadlift, as soon as you start to pull on the bar, your hips come up three inches and mm-hmm. naturally your shoulders have to go yeah. up three inches on the bar and you do your sets of five with that you will continue to scale because you probably have a decent split, right? Yeah. wrote out, you know, it's not a bad split by any stretch or special imagination, right? So you have, you'll continue to scale, but what you're also going to do is continue to train your body out of positioning. Right? So what you're doing is training your body in a, a weaker position than what it has to be in. Mm-hmm. So what I do is peel all that back. And yeah, sometimes my athletes, the first four or five weeks will get weaker. It doesn't Mm -hmm. happen often. You know, I would say 15% of the people I work with may get a little bit weaker the first Mm -hmm. four or five weeks while I'm building strength in their new positions. Typically, the guys who get weaker are the people who've been training like 15 years. Yeah, of course. A a shit ton of bad, you know, bad, um, bad positioning over the years, but they have the general strength for it. So what I'll do is rather than focusing on like, okay, you're deadlifting, this, 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 I'm going to be like, oh, you know, so here's the deal. Your hips keep kicking up. Your hamstrings can't support the load. So you're not even going to actually deadlift heavy. You're only going to, you're not going to deadlift anything over 60% and you're going to maintain your positioning. We're going to overload on the eccentric portion of the movement. So you're going to do five second eccentrics and mm-hmm. after the five, they second must hit you yes usually <laughs> just like you do. And, after, and but also what that 5 second eccentric does 4 second eccentric does and alex you know this to be true as well it trains the fuck out of your core core yes. strength and your upper back strength because you have to stay static in that position with you know 65 to 70% of your your max effort weight through 5 seconds on the way down so it's also it's it's developing out a lot of muscle groups not just your deadlift at the same time so i would have you do maybe a variation of the deadlift or if i felt um, you know, depending on which athlete it'd be, it'd be a variation of a weakness development exercise, Mm -hmm. which would be a specific exercise that's, that I've identified a weakness in your main movement. Now it doesn't have to be the deadlift. It can be, if you're a sprinter, like, okay, this is what you're going to need to be more, more effective with your gait. Now you, Mm -hmm. you, your, your, your legs coming out a little bit here. So we need to do this mobility exercise first to be able to get your gait a little bit more effective. And then we're going to work on hamstring development because that's over that's 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 lacking in your, in your performance right now so no matter what the end goal is i would i would program directly for that person's weakness exercise you know i just talk a lot about powerlifting because that's just what i'm in but i coach people through weakness development at all different ages levels and sports specific exercises
0: so have you studied like running and sprinting in that
1: uh i know i season? read um so the, no, I'm not the best when it comes to like sprint mechanics. I'm not your guy. Um, I know the base level that I can get like my high school athletes. I mean, I've even worked with some, I mean, Matt Overton, I did some sprint mechanic work with him and he's a professional fucking athlete, but it's not like, uh, I'm not your main guy. I just, I've read Louis Simmons. He has a book on sprint mechanics yeah. and that's about my extent of it because I'm not very passionate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know enough that if I see your gait, um, I have enough resources available to me. For instance, my buddy Connor, Connor Barber from Florida, like I could very easily hit him up ask him mm-hmm. a question. He works with mm-hmm. you know, high-level NBA guys. Um, I, I could ask people about sprint mechanics. Like, okay, what mobility exercise you do? Then I know the actual effective force output exercise that athletes not in need to be faster. Um, but, you know, even all, all color other sports like rotational exercises. So tennis. Um, baseball, when you're swinging the bat, like I'm gonna find, okay, this is where this is where you're, you're breaking down. This is where your bat speed's slowing down, mm-hmm. or you know, whatever it might look like, and then I'll be able to develop you out from there with a series of exercises that are gonna be most relevant per your specific sport.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting because I think it sheds light on the way that you learn versus the way more conventional students learn. And this um, popped to me, I think, when I started working in finance, but then when I started working at Google, where smart individuals and i consider you a smart individual will try to learn things holistically where they'll say well i don't actually know that much about sprinting but i know how the human body moves and so i know that if your hips are moving this way that this is this thing's probably going on and i know that if your your stride is looking like this this is probably going on with your hamstring mobility and I, and and so you can look for similar cues that came from your prior environment and you can see it in a new environment that you're not really an expert in and at least it will it will give you a hint into something that is wrong and worth drilling into and then you can ping a friend and say okay so i think something's wrong here what do you think yeah. um this is explicitly not part of our education system as i, as I would view it because that's not really something that's easily easy to test and so what you know, I guess what, what this conjures up to me is kind of when I took my personal training certification last year and I took it, you know, not because I wanted to learn necessarily, but because I was going to start creating all the social media content. Um, I'm figured I've been lifting for 15 years. I might as well just get a certification. And then, you know, when I was going through studying for that, for the NASM test, you know, it was the first thing that kind of resembled any sort of academic test that I took in like years, like 10 years, really like a memorization based test. And what it really, you know, reminded me of is that schooling just tests your ability to regurgitate information that can be memorized and that's fine, but it doesn't help you actually um, understand new environments, right? So if you, if you actually learn, what you'll realize is that every environment you're in is different than the previous environment, but the patterns that you see in environment A can transfer over to the, the patterns you see in environment B. What our university system and our school system does is train train you to understand patterns as they exist or facts as they exist in isolation and so really what that does is it, it hyper segments you um, because you can't really you, you can't transition you can't you know you can't be a demonstrated expert in one thing that required you to regurgitate content in the 99th percentile and then transition that somewhere else because you didn't actually understand the material that well. You just understood how to take the test.
1: Yeah. And it, and it doesn't pose, you know, an ASM test. You know, the, I work with all, I would have a mentorship program for personal trainers and a lot of them are wanting to be personal trainers or bridge the gap to be a gym owner, you know, from you know, regular job to a gym owner or a personal trainer to a gym owner. So I work with the, you know, right now I have four guys that I'm currently working with um, two in person and two online. And with that, it's always the first month is probably the hardest because it's, re, it's reopening their minds back up to a very, you know, because they know, they knew before they came in that two plus two always equals four, three plus one equals four, two plus, they, they this is what they know, right? They have these hard facts that like yeah. this and this has to equal this. And I just throw a new variable in, well, what about this? Now, what about this variable with the other? Well, how if he has tight hips, does he, do you still f- do that same exact program? Because two plus two always equals four? Or, or how do we redevelop this right. out? I, know it's not, there, I work with powerlifters. Uh, I trained this girl into setting four world records. So this was two years last year, mm-hmm. Allie. She set four world records. For our 12-week split, out of the 12 weeks, only the last four weeks did she go above 80%. And most strength coaches oh, like, yeah. what? That's retarded. Why would you do that? You know, you need to train above 80% to get stronger. And I've even said that multiple times. You need to be training above 90% in order to be able to put yourself in a position to do max effort loads. But what I knew with Allie was she was good at grinding through weights. It didn't matter what it was. From the barbell to 405, she could squat. It was always slow. So if I wanted to make her better and stronger, I had to make her faster. Mm-hmm. So I taught her how to squat faster so i developed exercises and weakness development exercises out whether it's through you know first it was her hips her hips would kick up and she'd internally rotate so like she needs more glute development so i started doing wide stance box squats through accommodated resistance i'd go ban- i'd go chains because chains are going to slow the eccentric movement because the chains pile up on each other oh. and then i'd go bands and then bands are going to speed the eccentric movement because it's actually applying more than just gravity yeah. it's also applying downward resistance and then i'd go into a raw weight exercise and so it'd be Chains, bands, raw weight. And Uh what we found was in a bar speed tracker that she was able to, and the metric of success that I gauged it off of is I have this bar speed tracker Uh that shows how many meters per second she's moving. And I wouldn't move her up in percentage of weight until she was able to move the the bar at the speed that I was Uh looking for. And that was the metric I gauged it off of. So what I did is increase her speech is exactly like, I don't think I'm gonna be ready to max out, you know, in three weeks. I'm mm-hmm. like, You're ready. You're already ready. So it's getting through that. Now the next thing was that they don't talk about this enough in these certifications is the 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 mental aspect of things. Mm-hmm. The people I train dude don't come to me for my knowledge. It's so funny. Now maybe online, but in person they don't. I work with like I only work with usually five people in person at a time because I don't like to do a lot of in-person coaching because I actually lose a little bit of money doing in-person coaching mm. in relation to being online. Sure. Because I just can make more money online. Yeah. So, but I like to work with a plethora of different type of, like right now I'm working with three older guys, uh, and high school athlete and professional athlete. So out of the three older guys I work with and one guy and his wife. So, with those people that I work with though, they're all in different realms and most mm-hmm. of them just are there for me for the conversations I have and what yeah. I provide. It really has nothing to do with the workouts. Like most of the workouts that I run for my four year old guys are very basic style mm-hmm. plans. Of course I have a lot of flair and stuff too, because I know a lot more about the iron, but that's also keeps them coming back to me because I'm mm-hmm. not just giving something that's always so traditional to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where I was going with that or what I was saying before.
0: Well, I mean, we were talking about, deviating from NASM and oh yeah and yeah like when I look at when I look at you and, and why I think you're one of the reasons why I think you know you've you've succeeded to the extent you have is you're offering you know a unique experience and a unique product and there's just not that many uh, equivalents of Zach Homo and not that many equivalents of Iron Valley Barbell And if you think about what the, what the school system does or what an education system does is it's a one to many approach. It's, this is the gold standard here. Million people learn this gold standard. Okay. So what's going to happen? You have a million people learning exactly the same thing. They can all compete against each other and drive prices down for the services that they provide because they provide exactly the same service. And if you want to not be in that position, you can't actually provide the exact same perspective as a million other people have. And so Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, there's a number of different ways you can you can provide an enhanced perspective. Maybe you have better experience uh, with certain types of clients, and so you can provide them with, with that experience. Maybe, you, maybe in fact, you're just a performer. Maybe you're a comedian who happens to like personal training, and people actually end up coming to you to laugh, to feel good. Like There's yeah. a lot of reasons why people buy things, and very frequently it's not for the explicit thing that's being sold. And so I think when when you want to understand the world or when you want to understand your job, you know, a question that that you should really ask yourself that opens up a lot of um, windows is what am I really buying and what am I really selling? And this is especially helpful in the luxury goods department, right? Where, where if you, if you just pay attention to why somebody's willing to pay $5,000 for a a leather bag or, you know, $120,000 for a car, $15,000 for a watch, They're not actually buying cars. They're not actually buying watches. They're not actually buying bags. Figure out what they're buying because once you figure out what they're buying, you figure out what you're actually selling. Yes.
1: You know, wrapping that back to training. Okay. The worst thing that I see with the mentorship program that I have is that my trainers think that there's clear black, white, wrong. Yeah. Right. Right. Black and white, wrong and right. And it's just, that's just not the case. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no great program for everybody. There's no one program that's going to work for absolutely everybody. No, when I create programs for the masses, I, I, base it off the collective data that I you know receive. Yeah. Cause all my all my coaches who work with me, both in my mentorship programs um, and oh and through all the IBB coaches, they all run the same programming. They run my programming but variance is off of my program because we're collecting data off of every client. Mm-hmm. And because these are my systems, this is what I believe in. So if you want to learn from me, you can work off of my skeletal programming and they know how to interchange exercises in and out per what each athlete's using. So when I dropped perfecting percentages, for instance, it was tested on over 500 clients. Mm -hmm. That was Jay's clients, my clients, Jeremy's clients, Dylan's clients, and all the guys. So it's basically it was like 12 to 14 coaches in every single client that they had for almost an entire year. Mm -hmm. So what we found was with all the data that we collected, these specific exercises worked better for you know the masses. Like out of out of all these people, what exercise gave you the most return for? You know the mass well it was this particular exercise okay this is what we're going to put in the book then because this is has the better chances of being effective for you know that the masses but when you start to only think of things in right and wrong manners especially mm-hmm. when it comes to training you turn your mind off of the ideas of what could be what might yeah be what you
0: are. almost shut yourself off from outlier opportunities yes and and this this kind of remind you know people talk to me about my diet all the time and they're like oh you know are you concerned about somebody tweeted, tweeted at me earlier today, you know, are you concerned about uh, heart issues uh, with all the meat and all the red meat that you're eating? Cause I'm probably eating you know, 400 pounds a year of red meat or something like that. Um, and I, I asked like, well, what are the symptoms that you would expect me to experience? Um, what are the negative symptoms you'd expect me to experience based on what I'm doing? And the only way I can tell you that what I'm doing isn't smart is if I'm experiencing these, these negative symptoms, but I'm not. And so if I were to approach my diet, in a more conventional manner, it would be research first, then apply, um, where I'm going to look at the literature. This is what the literature says, and then I'm going to do it, but there is no, uh, you know, response mechanism for that. So, so for me, if I understand what the literature says and I do that, but then I do something that the literature doesn't recommend and it happens to work, what am I supposed to do? I can either pretend that that didn't happen, but then I'm not learning, or I can say, no, actually this works for me personally. I don't know for whatever reason, there's a million variables going on, but for whatever it is I'm doing is working. So I don't care what's gonna be helpful for the 80 out of hundred people that they studied in a peer review research. I know with whatever it is combination that I'm doing, this happens to work well.
1: That's Wait, a good outlier <laughs> opportunities. It's great. And what people I think also neglect to recognize is that we are the research. Like yeah, I know yeah. bro science often is retarded. Like I will hundred percent agree there's some bro science is yeah. ridiculous, but I've learned, I'm guys, I'm not joking. I've learned a hundred times more from bro science than I have ever in any book, any workbook, any course I've taken, any book I've read, A hundred times more from bro science and life experiences. Now, if we're actually talking about, and and this is another thing, like you can go out and read as many self-help books as you want, but if you actually start auditing your weeks and auditing your experiences and being self-aware, you become your own self-help book. You realize the the areas of your life that you need to progress in. And I think people just fail to recognize that we're such consumers that we think we always have to consume things when really things are constantly being given to us. And it's our job to decide how we sort them out.
0: Right. Right. And this is gonna be a great quote. We're gonna have Jeremy cut that where he talk about bro science and we can distribute that everywhere on Instagram. Bro, it's bro science. Zach Olmo, the bro scientist. Um, the bro no, scientist. I think, that's, I, think that's, uh, I think that's completely correct. Um, how long does
1: it take for research to come I mean me and my buddy Tanner were talking about that they're they're working on so uh, blood restricted flow recovery yeah
0: we we talked about that yeah flossing
1: and stuff right and we don't know so it works so blood restricted flow uh, so if you sprain your ankle you wrap it really tight do some mobility exercises you know move your toes a certain way pick some stuff up and then release it generates new flow of blood and you know that's kind of like the idea of like acupuncture and scraping mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we know these methods are proven to work now when we're talking just in the realm of blood restricted uh, flow recovery there's not a lot of studies showing on how that could negatively impact we have found that right. it could work but is there any negatives to it so right. right now people are running with that idea of like it's the fucking best thing right. ever right. you know because a research project came out two years ago that took a year to do whatever but and it said it worked, so now we just think it, it works for everybody, which it very well may work for a ton of people. But what I'm saying is when you're, if, you, if you do an a, a extensive amount of uh, blood-restricted flow recovery, how is that affecting your, your running? How is that going to affect your, your knee? or your mm-hmm. running mechanics, is it causing any, is there any negatives that come from doing this style of recovery? Mm-hmm. Or is it, what's the negatives that come from this style of training? And that's how I approach my training is I look through as many lens. And I know you talked about this before on the podcast as well. I look at something and then I look at, okay, how can this be wrong? Or how can this be done a different way? Right. And how can this actually affect my body negatively? So when I'm programming for you, like we decided that Alex was deadlifting first, then squatting. And, you know, we felt like he's not quite recovered enough on the squat. So we just flipped the exercises around. So mm-hmm. now we're going to squat before we deadlift. The reason being is that the deadlift is a little bit more strenuous on the body than what the squat is. So it's going to put us in a more effective position and his deadlift is what, what we're finding it, um, is, is actually becoming um, okay. So we are focusing on increasing his deadlift. Mm-hmm. So we want him to have the most energy output on his deadlift. However, his, opposite day which would be a squat day is one of our main accessory days per his deadlift he's doing a lot of front squats uh-huh. uh, and he's doing variations of that so with that being said we want to make sure that he has most energy output on those particular days that he's focusing directly on his weaknesses on the deadlift so the main movement actually lessers its importance even though he's trying to increase his deadlift it's not as important as what it is for the front squats because the front squats develop out the weaknesses that we need on his deadlift and it's going to be given more bang for his butt
0: yeah, and and I'll have to say, you know, when I was doing front squats with three fifteen on Sunday, that felt a lot heavier than I thought it was gonna feel, despite the fact so with with the last week of of training, like I've I've never lifted in the two, three rep max range in the last 10 years just because I got I got done playing sports. I figured the the risk of injury wasn't worth it. Um, but you know, now that I'm I'm applying myself towards actually um increasing my my deadlift max to over 500 and um and my squat max and all that I'm actually doing lower rep lifting. And so you know I I I went through my training sessions last uh, last week where I technically blew through PRs, right? i would never touched 465 on a on a deadlift. I've never even tried to because I've never tried to do anything for three reps. Um and so that is technically 40 pounds heavier than anything I've ever attempted to lift but I, nice. just I just did it. it. It wasn't like, and I don't even consider it to be a PR cause it's like it's a three rep max. It's probably equivalent to like an eight rep, but you know, various weights that I have done or something like that. Um, but the same thing's true with, with, uh, you know, with the front squat, I'd never, I never front squatted before like six weeks ago. And so I just started front squatting and I'm like, okay, well, 265 is a good amount to pause squat. And okay. know, yeah, I think I can do 315. I'm gonna do 315. Oh, okay. That's actually 50 pounds heavier than anything I ever touched. Um, the week before, but I could tell that my body was getting fatigued. Like I could actually, I could, tell from the training that i've been doing um so i just finished week six i could tell week four was my best week of training and week five week five excuse me uh, we just got on uh, week seven so week five was my best week of training week six was a repeat of week five but when i was doing my pause deadlifts at 385 on week six it felt like it was a lot heavier than my pause deadlifts on week five when i was doing my front squats at two uh, you know my, my set of 265 on week six, it felt heavier um, than my sets of 265 on week five. And so when that rolled into week seven, uh, yeah, I'm pushing through, you know, weights that I hadn't touched before, but not quite to the, uh, the trajectory that would be ideal if I'm ideally recovered, not fully recovered. And so what we're going to end up doing is deloading for a week. And deloading is, is incredibly hard for, for a lot of people with a gung-ho mindset right? They, they want to outwork everybody. They want to, um, to, to never miss a training session. They want to stay on track. They want to stick with the plan. And the reality is your body's going to do what it wants to do. And if you don't realize that you're having a dialogue, right, with your body, you can't respond to the things that it's telling you. And so if you think about how, how, you know, schooling works, schooling is a monologue. It's a teacher telling you what to do. And that, but there's no I'm dialogue. So yeah, back from the, uh, the bathroom break, uh, you know, so what I was mentioning is you know, the education system is, is more of a monologue where, where it doesn't, um, it doesn't take into account the feedback of the, the thing being studied and a lot of hard headed people. I mean, it's just easier to have an enduring mindset where you're just, you say, I'm going to do this no matter what, no matter what gets in my way, I'm going to do that. And the type of people who have that mindset tend to be reasonably successful because they don't stop trying. They're not quitters, you know, and, and ultimately if you're going to be successful in life, perseverance is probably one of the most important things to have simply because you're not going to be successful your first time. It's like, if you, if I'm going to bet on a guy who tries a thousand times versus a guy who tries 10 times, I'm going to bet on the guy who tries a thousand times. But what, what that guy who tries a thousand times might lack is the, the nuanced ability to correct himself and say, okay, so actually in my effort would be better applied here. I'd actually do better if I stopped trying as hard here. And a lot of what, what I try to do is make sure that my, uh, my input justifies my output or my input is worth the output that I get. And if I'm, if I, I have no problem with pushing myself through, through intense training over and over and over again, like I can just do it. It's just tolerating pain. But if I'm not getting any benefit from tolerating the pain, why am I doing it? And hmm. i found with a lot of, you know, the dietary changes that I made over the years and the, the adjustments to my training, a lot of what, what I was doing wrong in my twenties was I was just doing too much and, and stacking my plate incorrectly, probably from, you know, following things that coaches had told me for the prior 10 years that might have made sense to me as a fifteen-year-old athlete. that didn't make sense to me as a twenty-five-year-old athlete.
1: Yeah, uh, dude, one hundred percent. You know, you 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 mentioned the hardest worker in the room, and there's there's a lot. And I, I don't want to like make this to be because this is just this is mostly just from observation. The hardest worker in the room typically isn't the best. Yeah, and because it, it takes a it takes more than a one dimensional approach in order to be the best, like how we're going to be able to get you to, you know, a high 500 pound plus deadlift mm-hmm. is by understanding like, Hey Zach, here's where my body, you know, it's the feedback, you know, it's the communication. Here's where my body is. Um, while I was able to still accomplish my reps, you know, cause a lot of people look at their progression straight linear. Um, there's literally programs, right? So it's mm-hmm. just like, when you look at your progress, only one dimensional where it's like, okay, I did complete my reps. So it's time to move on. Right. Or it's uh, time to up the weights, whatever that might look like you're only gauging through one metric. You're not, mm-hmm. did you gauge the speed? Did you gauge the fatigue? You know, mm-hmm. how was your rest period? Did you take longer rest periods this week into last week because your body wasn't recovered enough? Mm-hmm. And does that indicate okay, do we need a little bit more cardio, you know, high end sprint work? You know, what, what is it that we need to get your body moving more optimally uh, and effectively through the exercises? So I'm gauging your, I'm, when I'm coaching directly for Alex, I'm gauging both his force output. So his ability to do the rep range that was given his, you know, obviously rest, you know, how his body's feeling during the actual exercises, the speed in which the bar is moving and his rest periods. So these are all things that we've been varying throughout the last, you know, seven weeks of his training in order to get him in the position that he needs to be in him specifically to pull that maximum effort weight. That is going to be totally different for me. Like on my way back now for me to pull well, my goal would to be, I like to like, I don't know. I don't really have a goal, but I'd like to probably pull 700 sumo here in the next couple months. Um, which would just be cool or go back and do like an eight fifty trap bar deadlift because 800 slipped my disc. So I'm like, I fucking need to do that. So when I approach this training, though, you guys see the way I'm approaching it right now. I'm really just, I'm doing, like I said, 20 sets of one, no eccentric work with four Oh five. It's relatively light for me. Um, and then I'm going to do a whole lot of work on like GPP. My body's very fatigued. I haven't squatted in a while because of my ankle. Like I did. 15 goblet squats the other day, my legs are fucking sore. So it's just like in order, I, I'm not going to start though by doing 20 sets of 15 or five sets of 15 on goblet squats because it'll trash me. So I'm going to mm-hmm. slowly work myself back up um, through a series of exercises that I know is going to put me in a position to be the most effective for what my goal looks like. Um,
0: and that takes confidence and that takes courage. And and you might not realize it, you know, but I will say this, that uh, you know, especially if you're in a group environment and you're not the best, you're going to have a lot of pressure to be the hardest worker. And mm. so, you know, you're, you know, if you're, if you're a high school athlete and you're not the best player on your team, if you're not the hardest worker in the weight room, your coach is probably going to be mad at you. And the same thing in college, if you're not the best player on the team and you're not the hardest worker in the weight room, the coach is going to say, why is this person outworking you? And what that doesn't take into account is exactly what Zach said that the hardest worker in the room might not be doing the things that he should be doing to make himself better. Yeah, and, and you one- can
1: work hard on the things that you're like, Alex, you would, like, on your end, for the, like, you work hard in the, because it's easy for you now, all right, but you work hard in the kitchen. You yeah. work hard on your recovery. Yeah. You work hard on actually thinking about logical ways to approach things because your body's like, listen, dude. I'm you're working hard up here in your mind a whole lot harder than people are actually working in the gym. You're working a whole lot harder on your nutrition, your hydration and your rest and your stress levels. Mm -hmm. People do a really good job at working real hard for one hour. But Mm -hmm. what are you doing for the other 23 hours? Are you working that hard? Or did you really just blow your entire load in that 30 minute or that 80 minute training session?
0: Yeah, no, that's very
1: true. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, pe- people don't want to, they don't They don't realize that it's actually easier to to look at your, well, it's easier for me, and I think you might be different because you're different from a diet standpoint, but it's easier for me to look at, at my training as a complete lifestyle, or it's just like, I'm hungry, I will eat real food until I'm not hungry. I will eat real protein-dominant food until I'm not hungry. And if I want to keep my gains, every time I'm hungry, I'm going to eat real protein-dominant food. And it's just, it's like a a reflex. It's kind of like arguing with somebody on Twitter. Like, I don't even think about it. I I, like put, I apply literally no mind share to um, like meal planning. Like it's not stressful for me. It's literally like, I am hungry. I need to eat food. What food can I easily make that tastes delicious? That's real. That has a lot of protein. Okay, let me eat that. Um, And I, I don't convince myself that my results can be as good if I don't do it because Every time I don't do that, I get sick literally every time I'm kind of hungry at like 10 PM and I don't eat. If I do that two days in a row and then I go train and then I go train again, like my immune system is going to get weak. And I don't, I've seen no studies that say that this is true and I don't care. If but don't- it is
1: true. Yeah, but it is. It right. is because your central nervous system's fucking wore out, and your body's saying. What happens is when your body, when you're getting your body sick more times than not. Like, of course, like there could be germs. But let's think about this. I've been sick from training a, a thousand times. It's because I put my body under too much stress, and I didn't fill it with the right nutrition nutrients, and I got sick. And it happens to me. It's happened to me. It Like, like you said, dozens of times. Whether there's research to back that or not, I have no idea. But I know it happens, and I actually coach that.
0: Yeah, and and so that's that's really interesting, and that's also one of the reasons why why Zach and I click as well is because neither of us you know neither of us takes a academic first approach towards you know structuring a lot of the plans that we do. So neither of us are aware of any studies that validate what we're talking about. We don't care. I don't care if you show me that. Uh, uh, there's a study found no correlation between uh, caloric consumption and uh, immune immunodeficiencies or something like that it literally doesn't matter i've seen the pattern enough in my own life that i know that if i do not eat when i'm moderately hungry every time i will get sick like within a week and it's not like a yeah. flu sick it's just like i just i have a cold i can't train but, as hard as i want to Exactly. i don't yeah, want
1: exactly that. a cold it's not like you're fucking flu sick you're 100% right like i, th- I posted eat more red i said eat more meat and drink more water, and someone goes, well, gallon, or drink gallon of water, well, gallon of water, successive, add salt, you know, or whatever. I'm just like, listen, you can say whatever the fuck you want, and you can have as much research to back that as you want, but I've trained thousands of athletes, and there's a 99% chance their performance increases when they drink one gallon of water a day, and so does their energy output in all, all around life. I don't give a fuck if you know the fucking study or not. I'm telling you what I fucking ran with my fucking guys and saw my fucking results from it that's what it goes down to. You know, we get so caught up in reading one article, that there's always a contradicting article to that article anyways. Right. And, and,
0: and you know, you talked about this last week where somebody's always got to make that comment, you know, what about this? What about that? What about this? And to me, this happens a lot in a corporate environment. And I think it's one of the reasons why you see these superficial studies being circulated, no matter the, the content that they're about, whether it's about you know, an efficient work environment, whether it's about, you know, the right economic policy, the right COVID policy, uh, or the right training plan is you have, you know, everybody in a group environment is working to demonstrate the value that they can bring to the group. And so what you'll find, what I found at Google, what I would imagine exists at a lot of white shoe firms is you have a lot of, uh, you know, Ivy league or good students who are used to, to being praised by their superiors and kind of figured out through the first 22 years of their life, what they needed to do to be praised by others. And what I think a lot of it boils down to is the ability to regurgitate a headline from the New York times or the ability to regurgitate the conclusion of a study done by a respected quote unquote, respected organization. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes is the, you know, commercial equivalent of me commenting uh, to Zach on Twitter about why it's not necessary to, uh, drink a gallon of water a day. It's like a low investment way for me to demonstrate, to me to, for me to attempt to demonstrate that I have superior knowledge in some subject than other people. Um, and this will actually fool many people. The reason why this is common behavior is because it works. But what, what you realize is once, once you have a better understanding of the underlying material, you'd realize that that New York Times article is entirely insufficient to discuss what's going on or that McKinsey study is completely flawed for these six reasons and really not appropriate to bring up to advance, uh, you know, any points that you're trying to make. And so what a lot of people don't realize is what they're quoting just has the the text, the font, the typeface, and the logo of a well-respected group, but the substance behind it isn't really there and they don't care to do the research to find that the substance behind it isn't really there.
1: Right. And, you know, and that's the thing to do, especially when you get like articles linked or whatever it might look like First, first to see it through a bias or, you know, it's, it's through a bias lens period. But that I feel as if that gives people notoriety. Like I read this and this is what it said. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many of the, the people that I work with will, you know, cause I make them like, I'm working, I work with a kid tomorrow and a Friday and he comes in and we work together for three hours on his, uh, on the mentorship program that I was discussing. And, he always comes, I have him prepare content, whether, so right now we're, we're working around a little bit of stuff of like, you know, he's pitching. So his, the idea with like his pitching mechanics, and also like uh, we're discussing, you know, a lot of baseball coaches, like, well, you shouldn't bench press. And I'm like, they're not wrong. Like, is this going to effectively make your pitching better? But also on top of that is, are we saying that pitchers shouldn't bench just because, they were taught incorrectly how to bench press mm-hmm. and when they were taught incorrectly, I mentioned that's why their shoulders hurt. And that's why they didn't see the improvements that they wanted to, and they didn't carry over. Or also was it because that they were training their body? Um, they, their, their shoulders were, wore out Did they bench press, then go pitch the next day and then blamed it on the bench press for getting, or did they pitch, you know, 300 balls and then go bench press the next day? Like right. there's a lot of things that we need to take into consideration to saying, Oh, bench press is bad for your shoulders. Right. Well, did you check his positioning? What was the stimulus like the day before and the day after? What was his water intake? Like? What was his stress levels in time? Like if you can check all these boxes off mm-hmm. multiple times for me, yeah, that'll make sense. Do I think though pit- pitchers need to bench press? No, I don't. I just don't think there's enough bang for your buck there. Would I still have my pitchers bench pressing? Yeah, maybe to a board sometimes randomly, but I wouldn't have them try- training like a power lifter. I'm going to train them like a pitcher because right. that's what they're trying to be. That's what they make $100 million fucking doing, mm-hmm. not bench pressing. So right. I'm going to train my athletes to be better or my lifters or people I'm working with to be better at whatever it is. Like I work with construction guys and I work with this one dude who he lays brick and he's always rotating and his back always hurt. So you know what I did? I made him do more rotating exercises. He's like, really? "What? Why more rotating? Because it actually made him strong and learned. he taught him how to utilize his core to rotate, not yeah. to utilize his lower back to rotate. I, oh. him I taught him my exercises. So now every time he rotates, he knows how to brace his core, sit down. And he's like, dude, my back never, his back stopped hurting. It just doesn't even hurt no more. No stretches, no nothing. All I did is develop his core. So now he's not like, using lower back. Now he's just using this core. And I have literally saved people from going on disability, saved people from old ladies and old men from falling downstairs. You know, they're 65 years yeah. old and I'm teaching on deadlift. And you're like, you're an idiot, dude. Why would you do that? But the next thing you know, she lives to be in 70, 80, whatever it is, not in completely great health but she's deteriorating before you know it's like why do people people with longer legs have been proven to live longer right there's studies to show that is it the fucking truth again who knows about these fucking articles but all i'm saying is i read it once that old people can live longer if their legs are stronger you know i think about the first thing hmm my nana and actually ash's grandma same issue and and ash's great-grandfather the reason they all ended up in rest homes and they died two months after is because they fell and broke their hip. Well, yes. the reason they fell and broke their hip is because what? They didn't have enough muscle mass or legs are yeah. strong to support them, and they didn't understand their center of mass. Yes. So if I can teach them how to strengthen their legs, it doesn't have to be fucking maxed up or deadless, just reaching down and picking up a jug of milk. If I yeah. can teach them that and teach them the center of their mass, when they get it off balance, they'll be able to find their center of mass from bracing their core. So yeah. I'm going to increase someone's life expectancy by for strengthening sure. their legs and teaching them the center of their mass. Very simple things to do. I need six weeks to do it. I can teach you it. I can save your grandma from staying out of the rest of home.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because if you if you look at what most studies would probably show is most studies will will give you the average of how programming is usually dictated. And so what what they'll say is you know we had a hundred seniors uh, do squats or something for. 12 weeks and this is the results that we get and it's like well did you teach them how to do the squats did you evaluate their form
1: did you, did you did develop you, their weaknesses did are you, they did, brave, are they breathing correctly are they bracing correctly yeah What bars, like, what bars are they using and what right, plates are they right what, okay here's the deal with your squat performance if you're lip, if you're doing the same study and not actually moving the pins down if you're lifting the squat and you have to raise on your toes even a fucking half inch you're out of position and the weights going to be way heavier than what it has to be. Cause you're not, you're supposed to be sitting down you're supposed to be smaller. If you're having to lift the bar an extra six inches to stand up with it, you're also what utilizing more energy to do the movement. So it's just like, there's so many factors to even go down to the bars that you're using the plates. Are you? are they calibrated plates or regular plates? Because a regular plates can flex three to four pounds. So when three I say to four pounds, four, yes. So when you really I, most, most of my weights at the gym, dude, are 47 and 48 pounds. Wait, they're Look, start heavier? Bro, most of the plates at IVB are literally marked 47.4 pounds, 46.3 pounds, 42.4. They're all fucking over the map because they're not calibrated, which is also why calibrated plates are a lot more expensive. So, like, these are things. That's what I'm trying to say. They, this study could flex fucking 12, 15, 20 pounds, and we don't even know it. Well, that's and surprising. even talks about it. That's surprising. So,
0: that's surprising that the plates are heavier because you think the companies are like, 47-pound uh, plates are more expensive to produce than 45-pound plates. So we're going to actually sell 44.6-pound plates for 45-pound plates because that's the bare minimum we can supply. And then I would expect them to lose weight over time because they hit the ground. Right off and
1: stuff and like maybe that. they do that with the – the. Um, what's funny is people always say that rubber plates are lighter. You hear that all around, especially in the strength world. Like if people uh-huh. use rubber plates from like LA finish, so well, that wasn't really 405. It was like probably 380. No, I don't think that's true. Like, it's not yeah. that much of a flex, right? But uh, it's—I definitely feel as if for a to be a little lighter. And those are the more newer produced plates. All of my plates are fucking twenty-five years old. Oh, I you see. You know, we have old school irons. So maybe you're right, and then maybe they did switch that way. But I, I highly doubt it. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I really doubt it but yeah most of our plates are like 47 pounds I believe they're allowed like two and a half to three pounds each way as long as it's within two and a half three pounds space Jeez, that's a
0: huge difference for
1: yeah so if you have eight plates eight sixteen you're, you're talking 25 fucking pounds you could be off on what your lift is if you have four plates on each side
0: yeah you PR you didn't realize it <laughs> oops uh, you no, know, and,
1: and they don't they're not they're not assessing none of this with these fucking studies they're not assessing right. positioning is the athlete breaking first at his knees or his hips because if it's his knees and the bar's traveling over top of his toes he is losing right there in that moment okay here's the deal guys if you're squatting and you break first at your knees I want you to draw a straight line on the bar and you're going to see it as you descend you break first the knees, your chest is gonna come forward because the knee joint broke, right? Uh-huh. Your knees break forward. So the barbell then comes forward. Now that the barbell comes forward, it's coming over top of your quads. Well, my quads are strong, so that's great, right? Zach? Sure. Then you go down, you hit the hole, and as immediately as, you, as soon as you come back up, you have all this knee exposure so yeah. the knees coming closer over top of your toes which with most recent studies that knees are over top of toes is not detrimental for your knees but is always the most effective position to be in mm-hmm. because when you then initiate biomechanically speaking when you start to stand back up your knees go back when mm-hmm. your knees go back and the bar's are already forward that Chest is already forward, mm-hmm. the knees go back or goes even more over top of the knees. Now that you're in more of a good morning position, that strain is going into your lower back. Mm-hmm. Now that mm-hmm. so, so now you're saying, Oh, this guy's only increased his squat you know, 20 pounds from doing this. But I'm like, Yeah, but how much could he have did it if you just broke first at the at the hips and learned how to hip hinge correctly? Could he have handed mm-hmm. a lot more load because he had been more effective position on a squat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you I, watch a baby squat, they always hip hinge back. It's natural. You know what else is natural when you hip hinge? When you take a shit. You yeah. never break first at your knees when you take a shit or you sit on your nuts. That's that's just the fact. I've if never, you, if I've never you tried squatted, that. I may, never tried that, Zach. So I want you to go in and like if you break first at your knees in your squat, just go ahead and squat straight first at your knees. Like stand up real quick, Alex. Just stand up. Okay, right. Now you know how yeah. that would work speaking, right? So I want you to sit back on your onto the toy like you break one. Like you just gotta yeah. take a poop. Sit like back. There. There. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want you to break first at your knees and that bar's pulling you forward too. What are you going to to do? They fall
0: forward. It
1: doesn't make sense. Yeah, and sit, and sit on your fucking nuts. Yeah. You know, so we already know how to hip hinge, and we already know how to squat. But we you know when that barbell gets in our back, we kind of just lose all, all those thought processes. It's like, okay, this is an effective way to do it. This is not the effective way to do it. So anytime I read a study, I'm like, I'm going to see all the squats. i got to see all the bars they're using. i got to see all the plates they're using. i got to see how far they're lifting the bar off. Is it a tall guy or is it a short guy? Is the coach teaching them how to be in position per their body type? Because this is what I do. I, I'm working on a my deadlift workshop, which will be available next Friday. Mm-hmm. And in the deadlift workshop, I explain positioning per body types because everyone's going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I'm coaching, like, are they in the correct position per their body type? They have a really long torso, and I'm teaching athletes to get behind the bar on the deadlift, and they have this long torso. They're not going to be able to get as far behind the bar on the deadlift as what Alex and I, are, Alex mm-hmm. or I could. Mm-hmm. But – that's okay. They can still have a great deadlift if I just put them in the most practical position per their body type and then strengthen the movement within their positioning. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if I know you got to be a little bit over top of the bar to start, that means when you initiate that pull, your hips are going to want to come up. So what what I'll have to do, work a ton on teaching the athlete how to generate force with his hip directly to the bar and power rows, which is the idea of pulling the bar you know, doing a row, but aggressively, so Mm -hmm. pulling your back first. When people deadlift, they only think about pulling, they don't really think about pushing Mm and they only utilize their lower body. When I'm deadlifting, I'm trying to utilize my upper back too. I'm pulling everything Mm -hmm. up and back into me, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Up up Mm -hmm. and back into me. So these are all things that I'm coaching in my deadlift workshop that'll be available, like I said, in two weeks or next weekend. But, you know, yep. these are things that's not being talked about in these studies. So then my clients come to me, uh, my, my mentorship program, I told you, and the, these guys will come to me and they'll present a study. And I say, great, right. let's break it down now. And I start showing them, okay, this with this. Oh, they're all running the same program. So, of course, you know, this guy's already way more effective over here. He's He's been, you know, even if they had the same level of training experience, right? Mm-hmm. If you're all running the exact same program, of course people are going to get different results because people have different weaknesses.
0: Right. and And I think what's... Hard for people because most people are not in Zach's position um, in terms of their their understanding of the material. And so most of the time when people hear about these studies, they're probably talked about by somebody who is good looking, right? So maybe there's your average trainer, your average 24 hour fitness trainer um, is in better shape than the general population. He's probably in better shape than the average Twitter follower that we might have, right? And so this person's probably a little bit more outgoing because he's in sales, he's training, he has client relationships. And so you have a a somewhat charismatic, good looking person quoting a university study. This is a very believable combination. And it's exactly how like most fraud gets propagated throughout our society. Match those three things. Good looking person, you know, person who's better looking than his audience or her audience, um, reasonably articulate university or respected study. Mix those three things and people's critical reasoning goes out the window. They'll just assume yeah. that what, whatever comes next is true. And if you actually have knowledge beyond uh, what might come from these university uh, papers, these academic studies, and you've, kind of, you've been around this type of person enough, you will not get threatened by the content. You're like, okay, this is just one idea that could be true. Let's tease it out. Whereas most people will get intimidated in front of that person. And, and even if they have some inkling of like, well, what about this? What about that? They're almost too self-conscious to push back and say, like, I don't believe that, you know, because Mm -hmm. probably nine out of 10 times they said they don't believe it. You know, the response, are you anti-science? Like, no, I'm not anti-science. I just, this is just a conclusion I don't believe.
1: Yeah. And you know, dude, I've had this happen to me multiple times. Um, I get around a lot of bright minds uh, being in, in the position that i'm in like i said like don't get me wrong i still study a lot like and that's something that my guys talk about with me all the time like come you know you talk about all your observations um and that's how you learn the most but we see you read more than anybody else sure. about this stuff i read a fuck ton yeah. i learn like i read books articles like when it comes to actually lifting weights guys i love this stuff i really do i never had a, i didn't barely had any hobbies for 15 years outside of lifting weights which is also why i'm so good at it and understand it but they said, just because I read and consume a lot of things doesn't mean I'm regurgitating the things that I read. I just, I'm just i able to gain some value, but also I'm able to like clearly define my points better or draw new conclusions to my points. My programming, my systems, the way I coach, uh, the way I learn how to lift is ever and always changing. I'm always open for new ideas and to learn new things. I will ask people who I already know the answer to, what, what, what cue are you giving them on a the deadlift? I know the answer. I can fucking give you 15 of them. But that guy might say it just a little bit different than I did. And I said, mm, I like that. That'll mm-hmm. work for somebody. And I'll grab it and I'll put that tool in my tool belt because he who has the most tools in his tool belt can fix the most problems. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. All of our coaches, we need to be recognizing that we are going to deal with a multi- multiple problems over the years with clients that we deal with. With that being said, if you have enough tools and enough verbiage and enough analogies to go to give on how to train people, you're going to be able to train a plethora of more people. But I'll get around certain people in the space who are, super well gifted with terminology. They can say big words and they can say them fast. And like, it kind of runs me in circles. And I stopped by and said, well, what's the, when I, whenever it's called, then I said, so what's the conclusion? What are we trying to get our person to think, feel, and do? Mm-hmm. And then to our athlete to think, feel, and do. And then they start explaining again. I said, okay, if I don't understand that and I'm a high level coach,
0: yeah.
1: how is your 18 year old kid or 22 year old, athlete who just came from the hood who just right. lived off of uh who has no prior experience of working with a coach or straight development or this type of terminology how is he going to think about what you just said how is it going to make him feel and what's it going to make him do mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of our coaches are missing we're overfilled over we're overfilling or overfilling ourselves with terminology and verbiage and what and high level words to use right and not actually filling ourselves up with like okay how can i explain this to the general population because mm-hmm. the general population doesn't give a, sh- doesn't, they just don't give a shit. They don't give, they yeah. don't give a shit. What's, you know what I'm it's, saying? Yeah.
0: And it's, it's interesting that there's more studies done on, um, you know, AB program testing, like what's the best way to to do a program versus how to communicate the thing that we want you to do. Right. And so w- we should, and understand- that's why,
1: and I'm not trying to toot my homework, but that's why I'm the best coach in the industry. Cause I know how to communicate really effectively.
0: Yeah.
1: period. Yeah. Here, that period. I think there's great coaches in industry, but I have to have some ego to me to say like, dude, I've worked with enough people to know that the way I can communicate to people is super good. Do I know the most? Nah, definitely not. I learn way too much every day to know the most. There's right. no way I know the most, but how I can communicate it to people and the, how I can communicate to the people I'm around and how I can make my people feel when you're around me, you're fucking invincible. I'm teaching you how to be invincible. I'm distilling that type of confidence and self-belief. Into you. These are things that coaches are missing. They're reading too much. They're not focusing enough on the psychology with the people that they're working with. How are you going to get this person to respond? Just like you said, your coach before. All that matters is how can I give this idea so it's like your idea, right? To make that athlete feel as if it's his idea. And with it's his idea, he's empowered by that idea. Mm-hmm. When you have empowerment and you feel empowered by it, what? You have self belief, you have confidence. The more confidence you have, the better you're going to perform. Half of this lifting game is just mental, too. There's a reason why I weigh 188 pounds and can deadlift 585 on a sprained ankle.
0: Because mm-hmm. you're Superman.
1: I don't know about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that, that really is, you know, I think what ultimately providing value, you know, frequently comes down to is you look at what most trainers can do and they can do things that are taught from a book. But you can't teach, you know, the communication skills that Zach has strictly from reading books. I'm sure reading some books will help. But you, you need to have, a, you know, the appropriate combination of, you know, kind of studying what's out there, learning the playbook that people you might want to emulate are playing, and then figuring out how, how that can apply to your specific circumstance, because your specific circumstance is actually different than the circumstance of everybody you might read about online or in a, in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but I think and the, that kind
1: of goes down to your nutrition, like you have a template to work off, you're not eating fucking greasy right. cups, or popsicles, you know, what I mean? you, yeah. have popsicles. No, you have right. a template that you're working on, like, you know, that If I eat red meat and I eat these styles of foods that they're, they're good for me. Right. And they're going to be able to put me in a position to be optimal. Right. You have, you have the outline already worked and then you're just filling it with what you know is most effective for you. Right.
0: And and yeah, I mean, we, we talk about this, you know, many times, but I I just think if somebody's going to be listening to this in 2040, looking back, you know, this is the things that science thought was right in 2020. It's like science is always wrong. And it's always a combination of right and wrong. Right. So, yeah. you know, you'll look at sci- it's like in the seventies, you know, uh, it was uh, considered a mental disorder to be gay or something like that. And so it's yeah. like, this is, these things will change with time. What we, what we think to be true, um, will not be true 20 years from now. And so, you know, be careful, you need to learn if you want to get better. So you need to expose yourself to, you know, studies to give you ideas of what might be true, but ultimately, If it applies in your life and it works, it's true. If you try to apply it in your life over and over again and it doesn't work, it's not true. And that's all you need to know, you know, at least for your own personal development.
1: That's all you need. That is literally all you need to. And what's funny is I was just, uh, Ashley's dad and I share a lot of uh, old school. I'm real into like posters from either old school boxing and whatever it was. Got
0: that old Tyson Tyson shirt, yeah. Yeah.
1: Stuff like that, man. I'm really into just, I'm, I'm like, uh, it's funny the older I get, the more I just enjoy history. And it's like, I yeah, it's works. so
0: cool. Cause it's people, it's people who are just like, you know, in your shoes Yeah, it's, it's yes. something cool.
1: Yeah. And, um, uh, he, he sent me over a poster the other day of doctors, number one choice, more yeah. doctors smoke Camel <laughs> cigarettes than any other doctors in the, uh, than any other cigarette brand. And it was right. an ad for uh, Camel cigarettes or whatever it was, yeah. you know, Whenever that, whatever that was. So it's just like, Doctors were telling you what cigarettes they recommend. And now right. we're like, dude, cigarettes are all. like, if you go to third and world countries. Zach, country, Zach like,
0: doesn't listen to doctors. He's smoking Marlboro. So like, yeah,
1: you know, if I'm going to smoke anything it's Marlboro, it's cowboy killers. You know, you right. know, and that's the thing. You know, people don't also know this, that when you smoke cowboy killers and you're a cowboy, the odds of you dying from lung disease decrease by 20%. And that's a bro fact. <laughs>
0: Is is there like any because I've actually heard people like actually try to speak positively of smoking and I and they're not they're not wrong about everything
1: so I'm like trying to say okay like what am I missing here I'm just joking (laughs) no I'm just joking I don't smoke that much either don't let Alex um, but I do I do smoke a little bit more in the summertime I I, you know I get a pack of cigarettes maybe a month in the summertime. So yeah. it's something that I enjoy doing. It takes up some of my time and it's something, you know, whatever, um, that I do sometimes, but you know, if you're going to smoke anything, you know, I know they got like CBD now. Right. So I will yeah. smoke CBD cigarettes. Oh, um, interesting. I take
0: that orally every morning for, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, inflammation, which is, you know, I think for folks who aren't familiar with CBD, check it out. Um, I, as I get older, you know, I'm 34 today, but as I keep getting older, uh, my joints, will likely not be in the same position as they are every year going forward. And so uh, what I want to do with my diet and my training is figure out a way to get my work in while controlling inflammation um, so I can maximize my range of motion and limit uh, my body's otherwise inclination to get out of position and put myself in a position to get
1: hurt. 100%. And speaking directly to the CBD cigarettes, I don't think they're as effective as the oral either. Um, It's it's mostly for the act, the the idea. Of me whole kayaking. fixation, yeah, yeah. It's it's. I really don't even care about the, the reward or whatever yeah. that I'm going to receive from it. I like the idea of just smoking something. Yeah. Um, for years, I liked the idea of just sniffing stuff. Mm-hmm. I love to sniff cocaine. Sniff I Love glue. to sniff, pers- <laughs> yeah. Blue. Um, did you
0: sniff blue actually,
1: dude? I would sniff anything. Uh, markers, you name it. I would just sit in class and just smell a marker for a whole hour. Just-
0: what did
1: that make you high? I don't know. Just fucking not good for your brain. You know, yeah. it's hard to tell, you know, it's so funny. It's hard to tell because I was always so high or always so fucked up. You know, I looked back at my life and there was like a, over a decade, you know, I accomplished a lot of great things. I was a six figure, uh, that's the thing I perceived to be great in a lot of the things. Yeah. I made six year in the coal mine. I had new cars, had a motorcycle, had a dog, had an in pool. I had any girl I wanted. I was the man, right? My culture's uh, standard, right? Yeah. I was always fucked up. I hadn't been sober since I was like 17. Right. And I went nearly a decade just fucking, you know, fucked up on some type of drug, whatever it might have looked like, and still was able to kind of like learn, you know, obviously through that that process. And that's why I always say that life is going to teach us far more than we will with any textbook, especially with we audit ourselves. And through all these years, yes, I, I, I talked about this. Like even when I was in those states of mind, like I always had this level of awareness to me, like knowing, okay, this is where I'm at, and I know if I there's this line here, though, if I go a little bit over that line. I, the, I'm going to come back and I need to recognize, you know, I might become a full blown drug addict, you know, rather than just blowing some Coke now and then whatever that might look so like. You did, you,
0: you did actually set limits for yourself when it appeared oh, maybe oh. to the outside world that you didn't or, yeah. or looking back when you articulated.
1: it. No, 100%. Know. I always yeah. set limits for myself. Like I, I knew that I wasn't going like the, my biggest Six coke lines thing. max, not seven. <laughs> You're right. No, I would, uh, well, how I actually like really started, cause I realized my Coke, my Coke habit was getting out of hand fast. And the reason my Coke habit got out of hand faster than like my Percocet habits or my alcohol habits is because Coke was a lot easier to consume and it didn't affect me in a neg- any negative way. Yeah, you could still than- train
0: hard. You could probably train harder in many ways. Yeah. Oh,
1: I trained harder. I fucking made more money. I got more shit done. Like I'm telling you, there was, for me, there wasn't just a lot of negative effects other than Positive like maybe my temperament.
0: Performance enhancing drug in many ways.
1: Yeah, other than my temperament. I was a fucking bipolar basket case mm. and that, you can't maintain relationships when you're yeah. just fucking freaking out and no one's like, why is he like cool one minute and fucking mad the next? No one knows what I'm doing. I'm not fucking telling everyone I'll blow and go all day Why like do you I mad? Do.
0: So I, I, I don't have, you know, enough experience to, to understand <laughs> the mood swings. <laughs> yeah. that come I'm, I'm sure
1: it's the chemicals that, you know, put your body under. For me, it was like, yeah. I would. Imagine feeling, you know, when you hit a new PR or whatever yeah. it is, that intense amount yeah. of adrenaline, that dopamine, hit yep. that you feel superior, you know, yeah. you, you feel invincible. Yeah. Well, I was, I was able to reward myself with that every 30 minutes by sniffing a little bit of white stuff. Yeah. So every 30 minutes, and I did that, you know, for three months, let's say, two months, whatever it was that I was doing basically every day. So if I'm doing that every 30 minutes for two or three months, starting at like 4 a.m., and finishing mm-hmm. at like seven or eight in, in the evening and then smoking myself to sleep or whatever it was that I was mm-hmm. doing at that time, every 30 minutes I'm feeling superior. So if I go an hour or two hours or three hours, not that I was even, I never even felt like I was craving the drug really bad. Never even really felt like that. I just loved the idea of being fucking feeling like I was superior. Yeah. It's like, why not? You know, two o'clock, why self, not? Yeah. It was a self-righteous, egotistical, selfish way to live life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took me many years to kind of wake up to that. But it was weird and hard, I guess, for me to kind of of fully recognize that because I was never really like a bad person. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you could say, like, I always maintain good friendships. I've always been good to people. Like, I've always loved people. Like, the personality that I have never really changed much. It could just be like one minute you see me and next time I'm trying to fucking ring you up or something, you know? And and that's just what you learn, I guess. You know, You learn that over time. And that's why I'm always like when people deal with addictions, I can really understand Cause I'm like, I was so close like, I don't want to say that I was ever addicted, but I really enjoyed, uh, right. you know, doing the, the drugs that I did over the years. And, um, but it also really, it, it, it gave me a level of understanding people. Like it doesn't matter. I, I get, I can get, I got friends now who are drug addicts, drug dealers. And I have friends who are pastors I know how to spend my time with them and where to spend my time with them. Mm -hmm. Cause I still think they're good people at heart. Like I know there's still great people at heart in both ends of the spectrum. So it's like, it's also taught me how to understand people and I can also work with the wider demographic of folks.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that. Um, And I think that's one thing that you get from maybe moving around multiple times and then also working in multiple industries or, or different domains. And I think, you know, the one thing that I notice is has You know, in common with a lot of the people that I think bring unique perspective to my world, is the fact that they've succeeded in multiple distinct environments. Because if you've succeeded in multiple distinct environments, chances are you have some sort of underlying understanding of how humans work or how the human condition works and the irrational things that we will do—not just as athletes, but as corporate employees or as um, you know, enraged citizens or you know, social media people. Like you just start to see these patterns make a lot more sense than if you're just in one matrix and haven't left it. And, um, you know, I I think it's, um, it it is telling what you said about looking at a drug dealer and looking at a pastor and, and being able to find commonality and common ground with them. Because I will say that, um, when I was working at Google, um, because I had played professional baseball prior, because I had lived in Hong Kong and worked at a hedge fund prior because I'd worked construction prior, um, you know, I was familiar with all ways that people could be bad people and, and, or at least many of the ways that people could be bad people and the different environments that would get them to do, to do bad things. And what I eventually, uh, realized was, you know, when I would walk home from work, I would walk by a, a row of strip clubs in San Francisco on Broadway street. Cause I lived in, in North beach, the Italian neighborhood, which is the same neighborhood that has a lot of this red light stuff. I'd walk by these people at the strip clubs, I think we're not that, we're not dissimilar, right? You know, we are in many ways, both puppets, um, playing for, for somebody else. And that's just the nature of my life at 25, 26. And that's just the nature of your life right now. And despite the fact that our resumes might look very different and people on the outside Mm -hmm. might judge us very differently. Um, you know, we're both perform, we're both paid to dance and, and let's be real about it. Most people are not, they lack the self-awareness to say I'm basically paid to dance. And and so because they lack self-awareness to realize the, the actual circumstances that they're in, they're never going to respond you um, know, in, in the way that somebody who's say more cynical might respond because they'll convince themselves that the lies that they're telling people that they'd never tell on behalf of their own product, but they're okay telling on behalf of their own company. They're convincing themselves that I'm just doing my job. It's the right thing to do. I'm just doing what I'm told. They rationalize, you know, essentially group level sociopathy. <laughs> well,
1: it's a lot easier too, to rationalize things. Let's be 100% with this. It's easier to rationalize things when you have people in your corner or people in your environment that's yeah. rationalizing things with you yes. when they're making it common. You yeah. see people do a lot of bad and crazy things. Like I saw my parents do bad things in their drug addictions, right? That they rationalize because the people in the environments that they're in rationalize it as well. Sure. And that's why it's so important when I say like when I hang out with my friends um, who, who are drug addicts, right? Uh, drug dealers, whatever that might look like. It, it's important that I hang out with them in the environment that I choose. Mm. Because I'm able to understand that if I enter into their environment, so even it if it makes that- sense. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It will start to make sense. That if, and I also recognize that like, like you said a minute ago, Alex, I'm not very far off from this. Like Mm. I realize when I'm in their environment, like you, like I get, I can parallel that you're really not that bad of a person. Uh, You know, you're even some of your values even align with mine, right? And and I can find myself in those environments doing things I might typically do if I didn't put myself in that environment. So it's a self awareness and notice. Like you know, here's the deal, guys. If you're naked and you're married and there's a fucking hot chick riding you, the odds of you having sex and she really wants to have sex dramatically increase if you're at then just at home watching a movie right? Your environment is extremely important and you have to recognize when you place yourself in environments, you're also leaving yourself vulnerable to whatever it might bring. Yeah. Whether it and, be good or bad.
0: Yeah. And, and it's in and to, to take that one ridiculous step further, you know, cause I, I normally live in San Francisco where there's such a high degree of homelessness and mental illness. When I walk by a lot of these people, they're not all 100% crazy, which is, which is the scary thing, is once you realize that crazy people aren't 100% crazy, you have to take them seriously and start to understand, okay, so this is a real thing that I can, I can encounter in my, my everyday existence. Sort of like when, when you know, we were lo- younger learning history, learning about Hitler, learning about Mao, learning about Stalin, uh, oftentimes these people are presented as crazy. And that's easy, it's calming to see these people as crazy, but once you understand, you
1: can a, rationalize it, right?
0: Yeah. And when, but once you understand as an adult, like, yeah, they're, they're kind of nuts, but like, they're also really smart in many ways that other people aren't, which is why they were able to execute on their crazy ideas. Um, that's what's, that's what's a little bit more disconcerting for other people, because then you realize that these threats exist in our present environment. They don't just exist in history books. They're all around us. And, and so when I'm in San Francisco and I'm looking at other, you know, other homeless people who are essentially yelling at themselves, a lot of times are having conversations with themselves. What they do is a lot of times they're reliving confrontations that they had with other people, presumably many years ago, maybe earlier that day. I don't actually know cause I, I'm not having deep conversations with them about their lives, but they're, they're constantly getting in verbal confrontations with real people too. So you, you know that they're, they're playing through these conflicts in their minds and they're just, Yelling at someone who's not there, but I'm, I don't think it's a person that they're imagining. I think they're just going through, going through conflicts that they can't drop. And what's really interesting is when I was talking to my friend who's a major league baseball player, um, where he was pissed about the way his organization was treating him, uh, last year. Um, I'm like, dude, you're like, I know you're not this, but like, you got to realize that you're putting yourself in a, in a mental framework that's incredibly similar to people who are living incredibly different lives than you and you're just reliving these fights over and over and over in your own head. You're not winning anything by playing these fights over in your head. And this is something that I do too, in, in times where it's like, there's something that I can't get out of my head. I'm just, re, I'm just replaying the replay. Like, how should I have done this? How should I have done that? Everybody does it. With a portion of the population, it just drives them nuts. And so yeah. you have to realize like, if, if you do that to excess, that could be you. So like, maybe chill yeah. out a little bit.
1: Yeah, you're 100% right. You have to also, in in those moments, it doesn't matter how you rationalize it, but you, you have to lay it to rest. You know, whatever that might look like, there has to come a time in your life that you learn to lay certain things to rest as it doesn't need your energy output. You know, you don't have to allow every thought to become an emotion. And I think that's where a lot of us fail and do you end up on that crazy train that you were discussing is that you continue to allow thoughts to become emotions. And when things become an emotion, they begin to become an identity.
0: Well, that's uh, that is, that's very, very deep. And I think, you know, on the topic of laying things to rest, we've been going for a couple hours. I think uh, I probably need to get going with my, my regular work day, but how about that for, for the next episode, episode four, like how do you lay things to rest? How do we stop, thoughts from turning into emotions and turning into actions.
1: Love that. Um, Let's do it, bro.
0: Correct it. Awesome, buddy. It's great. Number three. Guys,
1: Thanks for tuning in to outlast the iron. This is Zach Hummel.
0: This is Alex Feinberg. Catch (laughs) you later.
1: Later guys. Excellent.